The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV can now be heard on the Audible mobile app, available on iOS or Android devices, in addition to Stitcher, Podbean, and most major podcast platforms. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. All the ways to support are right here in the show notes or easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. One of the most popular genre trends in recent entertainment is that of the superhero. In addition to big budget spectacles like the Avengers and Justice League, the small screen is also filled with this genre. Frequently, these films and TV series include heroes that don't really have superpowers. Arrow, The Atom, Batwoman, and White Canary all fight crime, but in addition to very particular sets of skills, have access to technology, and very often some type of fantastic vehicle that tips the balance in their favor. But the fantasy of the costumed crime-fighting vigilante is nothing new. Ancient Chinese folklore tells of Guo Xie from the 2nd century BCE, a commoner who often acted as a force of vengeance becoming known and in demand for his abilities as a warrior, a problem solver, a dispute arbitrator, and a general champion of justice. It was said that ten messengers from people requesting his aid would show up at his home on any given day. In the West, folkloric heroes such as the legendary Robin Hood would fight for the common people. Tales told in ballads around the campfire that date back to around the 15th century CE spoke of his anti-clerical stance, and particularly his fight against the corrupt Sheriff of Nottingham and his cohorts. 
In the modern era, this myth of the crime-fighting vigilante, often accompanied by a secret dual identity, can trace its origins back to the 1905 novel The Scarlet Pimpernel, where wealthy fop Sir Percy Blakeney leads a double life as swordsman, master of disguise, and escape artist. Beginning in 1914, the Jimmy Dale stories by Frank L. Packard brought this concept into a contemporary setting with the character The Gray Seal, a Harvard-educated master lockpick who wore a mask and who left a diamond-shaped gray paper seal behind as his calling card. Interestingly, these stories established the concept of a secret hideout or lair for the hero, called in these stories the Sanctuary, a story element we would see repeated in the tales of Doc Savage, Superman, and Batman. The stories were adapted into a 16-chapter 1917 movie serial for early studio Mutual Film, starring E.K. Lincoln. Sadly, no known copies exist, and the films are presumed lost. The stories by pulp writer Johnston McCauley, beginning in 1919, gave us the stylish Don Diego de la Vega, much like Robin Hood, defending the common and indigenous peoples of California against corrupt and tyrannical officials. He wore an all-black costume, cape, cordovan hat, and signature rapier used to leave his calling card, the initial Z, before riding off on his trusty steed, Tornado. You likely will recognize his nom de plume, Zorro. The character began appearing in film adaptations in 1920, which have continued into the 21st century. As pulp magazines gave way to comic books in the 1930s, their pages were full of these types of characters, many of them carrying over to radio dramas and later television with those mediums spawning original characters of their own. The Shadow. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> the Shadow knows. The Lone Ranger. A fiery horse with a speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high of silver. The Lone Ranger. And of particular interest... The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet radio show, introduced in 1936, depicted a masked vigilante who in reality was newspaper publisher Britt Reed, breaking up many a scam, shakedown, and racket. And brother, there were a lot of rackets. Like the Gray Seal, Hornet would leave behind a calling card first a sticker with his hornet insignia, then later an inked imprint of the hornet design created with a ring hand-carved out of jade by his faithful servant, Cato. Among several elements that would be adopted by other characters that came to be known as superheroes was that of a fantastic vehicle. The sleek, super-powered black beauty, streamlined car of the green hornet. The 1940 movie serials further developed this concept and for the first time visually presented a super-powered, fantastic vehicle to audiences. 
while the radio show outlined a few details of the car, such as bulletproof windows, that the engine was perfectly tuned and could outrun the police. The Universal Pictures serial went out of its way to mention modifications to the automobile that were made by Green Hornet's Korean sidekick, Kato, that made it capable of 200 miles per hour. Of course, because the serial was the first visual representation of the Green Hornet, this was our first glimpse of the Black Beauty, a 1937 Lincoln Zephyr. Kato's Chemical Energizer transformed the Zephyr's V12 engine into the strongest motor ever built and the fastest. How fast will she go? Better than 200. As the radio show continued into the 1940s, additional capabilities were added to the Black Beauty. The use of a secret layer for the duo to use is also established, shown in the serial as a basement garage with a secret entrance hidden behind a bookcase with an automatic garage door that would close via the use of an electric eye. This was three years before the Batcave made its debut in a 1943 serial and four years before it was established in the Batman comics, which seemed to emulate several story elements from the Green Hornet. The Green Hornet went to ABC television in 1966 with Van Williams and Bruce Lee as the lead actors. Of course, so did Batman that same year. Though the two famously crossed over in a pair of 1967 episodes, Hornet attempted a slightly more serious tone and wasn't nearly as campily played as the Batman series. On the show, Hornet's Black Beauty was a 1966 Chrysler Imperial Crown hardtop, customized by Dean Jeffries and was something James Bond would be envious of. The Black Beauty could fire rockets from tubes hidden behind retractable panels below the headlights, had a concealed drop-down knockout gas nozzle in the center of the front grille, and the vehicle could launch a small flying video audio surveillance device, referred to as the scanner, but what we would now call a drone, through a small rectangular panel in the middle of the trunk lid. The trunk itself revealed its own trove of hidden rockets and gas nozzles. When it came time to launch the Black Beauty, Kato would hit a sequence of buttons on a secret control panel behind a tool pegboard, which would in sequence lower the lights to a green tent, attach clamps to spring-loaded frame protrusions on the front and rear of Reed's personal car, rotate a garage floor cutout, hiding Reed's car in bringing up the Black Beauty, and finally unclamp the Black Beauty. The car would then exit the garage through a hidden rear door and enter the street from behind a billboard advertising the fictitious product Kissin' Candy Mints with the slogan, How Sweet They Are, a billboard which would split down the middle to reveal a hidden door from which the Black Beauty would emerge. Then the billboard would slide closed, again concealing the secret entrance. By the time the 80s rolled around, fantastic and iconic, highly recognizable vehicles were all over the airwaves. 1980 kicked off with that mustachioed private eye driving around Hawaii in a Rosso Corsa Red Ferrari 308 GTS in Magnum PI. 
Two years later, Michael Knight roamed the country in an artificially intelligent, black, custom Pontiac Firebird Trans Am T-Top, called Kit in Knight Rider. The following year, a crack commando unit on the run traveled Southern California in a custom gray-on-black 1983 GMC Vandura with rear spoiler and red stripe in the A-Team. That same year, Skid McCormick tore up LA freeways in the Coyote X, a special-built race car modeled largely after the McLaren M6 GT in Hardcastle and McCormick. In 1984, Stringfellow Hawk piloted an advanced prototype supersonic stealth helicopter across the American Southwest on secret missions for the mysterious firm in Airwolf. In reality, Airwolf was a cosmetically modified twin-engine Bell 222. Also in 1984, Sonny Crockett and Rico Tubbs patrolled the coastal drug scene in a white 1986 Ferrari Testarossa in Miami Vice. All these vehicles became forever identified with the TV shows they appeared on. Why were there so many fantastic, iconic vehicles on TV in the 80s? One reason may have been that a distinct vehicle was something a TV audience could immediately recognize and know what show they stumbled onto when changing channels. Also, a vehicle connected to a successful show was something easily merchandisable and sold as licensed toys and thus could provide additional streams of revenue for the studio. And there's always the fact that the vehicles were often great advertising for a manufacturer. We all know Kit was a Pontiac Trans Am. The A-Team van was a GMC, and Miami Vice was practically a commercial for Ferrari, well-craft powerboats, and Ray-Bans, all of which received a bump in sales due to exposure on the show. This sets the stage for the topic of our podcast. Allow me to introduce Bruce Lansbury. The London-born Lansbury came from a family of some status. His mother was an actress and his father a politician. At the outbreak of World War II, he came to New York with his mother and siblings, eventually settling in L.A. He attended UCLA and began working as a mid-level executive at WABC, moving on to working in program development at CBS and then for creative affairs at Paramount Television during the days of The Odd Couple, Love American Style, Happy Days, and The Brady Bunch. Oh, both his twin brother and older sister entered the arts. Brother Edgar behind the scenes as an art director and producer, and sister Angela finding success on stage and screen. You might know her from her role as detective novelist Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote. Lansbury showed an interest and talent for developing sci-fi and fantasy-related programs. When the Wild Wild West creator Michael Garrison died unexpectedly, he took over as producer in its second season. He then became a producer on Mission Impossible. With this experience under his belt, along with his connections at Paramount Television, he was able to create and bring to the screen his own series in the fall of 1973. For one brief season, Bill Bixby mesmerized viewers as The Magician, a playboy philanthropist that used his skills to solve crimes and help the helpless. A few years later, Lansbury went on to run 
both the short-lived The Fantastic Journey, as well as the second and third seasons of Wonder Woman. When that series ended, he was the supervising producer of Universal Television's Buck Rogers in the 25th century. As the 80s progressed, he brought to the small screen a what-if miniseries called World War III that explored what would happen if the Soviets invaded Alaska, and he was one of the many producers on Stephen D'Souza's The Powers of Matthew Starr, which will be explored in depth in an upcoming Forgotten TV. And bringing us back full circle, he took over producing duties in 1985 for Season 4 of Universal Television's Knight Rider. But prior to Knight Rider, he had a series concept he had pitched to Universal, which they opted not to develop. But it was undoubtedly the success of Knight Rider, then going into second season production, that caused Universal to revisit Lansbury's concept in late 1983, a concept developed into the 1985 series Street Hawk for ABC, revolving around a high-tech experimental all-terrain super motorcycle designed to fight urban crime. Out of the darkness, one man, one machine. Hold on tight. The year of the Street Hawk begins this Friday at 8.30, 7.30 Central in Mountain. But instead of the capable Lansbury being given the show, series development was then handed to Paul M. Bellas and Robert Walterstorff, a team with far less experience with TV production. The pair had worked on Season 5 of The Jeffersons in writing and story development and had penned individual episodes of Good Times, Eight is Enough, The Incredible Hulk, and The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. Bellis and Walterstorff then formed their own production company in 1980 to produce a TV pilot called Pen in Ink for Universal Television. The whimsical sitcom pilot starred Matt McCoy as an ad man turned political cartoonist whose daydreams appeared on screen as animated characters. It aired as what they called a busted pilot in August 1981 on CBS. A couple years later, the pair wrote and produced a TV movie for Universal and ABC called The Outlaws. The plot revolved around two dim-witted friends that got mixed up in a jewel heist and wrongly sent to prison, where they get swept up in a prison break and go on the lam in various disguises. Called an all-white stir-crazy, the pilot was not picked up by ABC and was dumped on the schedule in July of 1984. For reasons still not clear, Universal handed development and production reins to this creative duo, who had never run a television series, and except for a single episode of The Incredible Hulk, had only worked on TV comedies. The show went through several working titles, a lawsuit from Honda, and multiple setbacks that were out of the control of the producers or studio, as we'll examine. One of those setbacks we will fully examine was a move in the scheduled premiere date. Initially promised for Monday nights in the fall of 1984, even in the fall preview issue of TV Guide, for reasons we'll cover, ABC moved the series to mid-season, with the show premiering in January on Friday nights. 
For the lead role, pop singer and experienced motorcycle rider Rex Smith was selected, who had just spent three years playing Frederick in The Pirates of Penzance on Broadway and in the 1983 theatrical adaptation. Joe Rigalbuto was cast as co-star, who had only appeared in comedic roles on television. And actress model Jane Modine and veteran actor Richard Venture rounded out the cast. Street Hawk aired as a 90-minute movie Friday, January 4th, 1985 on ABC at a special time, 8.30, 7.30 Central, in between Webster and Matt Houston, on against V the Series and Hunter on NBC and The Dukes of Hazard and Dallas on CBS. Guest starring Lawrence Pressman, Robert Beltran, who later portrayed Chakotay on Star Trek Voyager, and special guest star Christopher Lloyd. While police commander Leo Altobelli is on the scene of a police evidence transport cocaine heist facilitated by motorcycle, police officer Jesse Mock and quite a number of his fellow officers are at an unauthorized private stunt show out by the port of LA where he is jumping over four black and white units. Unknown to the assembled group, they are secretly being filmed by government research engineer Norman Tuttle. Then are promptly busted by their commander flying overhead in a chopper. Mock, along with partner Marty, who organized the jump, are given two weeks suspension. While on suspension, out riding in the desert on dirt bikes, Marty stumbles upon a drug deal orchestrated by Tony Corrido, the one behind the police transport heists, and is killed for his trouble. When Jesse finds his body in the desert, he is run down by Corrido's truck. Sometime later, an injured Jesse is assigned a department PR job, while murdered friend Marty is under investigation by IA. Jesse is then approached by Norman Tuttle, who offers him the chance to participate in a pilot government program to test Street Hawk, an all-terrain attack motorcycle designed to fight urban crime, equipped with a particle beam as an offensive weapon and a gun of sorts as an emergency backup that fires a rubber bullet. The cycle also has a compressed air jet assist, allowing it to perform jumps without a ramp, and a hyperthrust mode, making it capable of incredible speeds up to 300 miles per hour. L.A. was chosen as the test bed for Street Hawk, and if successful, the program would be rolled out nationwide. He is also offered a secret surgery to repair his damaged knee that keeps him on desk duty. Norman coaches Jesse through physical rehabilitation, but at his day job at the police department, he continues to wear a leg brace to conceal the fact that he is now healed. Meanwhile, colleague Sandy McCoy expresses her irritation at Jesse, being gone so much of the workday, and the two go out to dinner to get better acquainted as co-workers. Jesse also independently runs a test on paint chips found on Marty's wrecked motorcycle. It is also revealed that the police commissioner is in the pocket of Tony Corrido, who orders a hit on Jesse Mock. Norman decides to give Jesse a test run on Street Hawk, and we are treated to stylized motorcycle riding scenes at night on wet streets, as well as the hyperthrust sequence, where the bike accelerates to 314 miles per hour and malfunctions. 
But before he heads back to base, he takes care of a pair of petty criminals trying to flee a liquor store robbery. Jesse and Sandy engage in old-fashioned police work, tracking down the custom paint job, and in the course of this investigation, Sandy discovers the police commissioner's involvement with Corrito and is kidnapped for her trouble. When Jesse sees Corrito's black pickup out on patrol, he takes Streethawk out on a personal run to avenge his partner. This leads to Jesse rescuing Sandy, but ends in a chase outside the city and Streethawk's particle beam malfunctions. In a game of chicken, Jesse leads Corrito to the edge of a cliff as he engages the airfoils and activates vertical lift, performing a 360-degree mid-air backflip, and Corrito and his tricked-out black custom pickup land in the bottom of a gorge. Back at Command Center, while Norman marvels at the seemingly impossible stunt Jesse pulled off, Commander Altobelli promises the press they've seen the last of Streethawk. Written by Paul Bellis and Robert Walterstorff. Directed by Virgil W. Vogel. Filmed in February 1984, the pilot movie aired nearly a full year later as a result of ABC's postponing the debut to mid-season. Streethawk came in second in the ratings in its odd 90-minute time slot with a 17.9 rating and a 26 share, likely benefiting from the lead-in from a new episode of Webster, before some viewers switched channels to Dallas at 9 p.m. The pilot's musical score was done by German electronica band Tangerine Dream and was the first U.S. television exposure for them, as we will fully examine later in Behind the Scenes. But how about some behind-the-scenes info on the special effects seen in the pilot movie? The effects of Streethawk's particle beam were different in the U.S. version versus the one that aired internationally. In the U.S., we saw a narrow red beam emitted, while internationally, the effect scene was similar to that of Force Lightning from the Star Wars films. Dialogue in the police press conference was changed to reflect this. Why was this? The original script refers to an arching blue ray of energy. For the series... The creative decision was made for this to be more of a red laser effect, and thus the effects in the pilot were redone to match the series for U.S. airings. When Streethawk jumps over the police cars after taking care of the liquor store robbers, this was originally done in blue screen with a compressed air effect, emphasizing the vertical lift feature. But this was clearly a post-production effect and not a practical stunt performed while filming. The reason it wasn't simply a filmed stunt the first time around was that the street-legal dual-sport Honda XL500R cycles used in the pilot just didn't have the suspension capabilities that the later cycles used in the series did, and were thus only used for two practical stunts, neither of which were high jumps. Thus, when the series was in production, this scene was reshot as a practical stunt using a ramp. Also, the international version had a warp speed type color streak effect when Streethawk accelerated away in some scenes. The creative decision was made to remove these for the aired U.S. version, but all these original effects were present in the longer international version, included as an extra on the DVD set. Different music is also heard internationally in some scenes. An episode numbering note 
I'm using the same numbering convention as on the DVD and IMDb page that counts the pilot movie as Episode 1, even though in later syndicated runs, it was split into two episodes. Next, on Streethawk took out my brother. I'm going to kill him. You and you need to have this uh, real competition thing going, don't you? We should go for blood on the raceway and then race hell together when the sun went down. Police say they are optimistic about catching this auto safe race, led by the so-called Phantom Driver. This Phantom Driver's got us all into overtime. He sounds like one bad driver. I'm going after the Phantom Driver. Oh, that's terrific. What is this, the call of the wild? Yes, it's a trap. Episode 2, A Second Self aired the following week, January 11th, 1985, now at its regular time of 9, 8 Central, against Dallas and Hunter. The show now opens with its proper full theme and an additional voiceover by ABC's Ernie Anderson explaining the show premise to new viewers. This is Jesse Mock, an ex-motorcycle cop injured in the line of duty. Now a police troubleshooter, he's been recruited for a top-secret government mission to ride Streethawk, an all-terrain attack motorcycle designed to fight urban crime, capable of incredible speeds up to 300 miles an hour and immense firepower. Only one man, federal agent Norman Tuttle, knows Jesse Mock's true identity. The man, the machine, Streethawk. On a nighttime test run of Streethawk, Jesse comes across a car theft in progress. When Streethawk intervenes, a car chase results in a crash and the death of the less experienced member of the crew, the kid brother of the leader of the car theft ring. And Streethawk is unfairly blamed. This puts a target on Streethawk. Meanwhile, Kevin, an old friend of Jesse's from the racing circuit, shows up and the two catch up during a music montage with Norman being the third wheel. Our storylines converge when it turns out Kevin is the man hired to kill Streethawk. And soon Kevin, driving a souped-up 1969 black Dodge Charger, leads Streethawk into an ambush. Not knowing Jesse and Streethawk are one in the same. Guest stars George Clooney, Robert Lipton, and Marco Rodriguez. Written by Bruce Servi and Nicholas Correa. Directed by Virgil W. Vogel. This episode received a 15 Nielsen rating, coming in in a respectable second behind Dallas, beating a new episode of Hunter. Streethawk now features automatic weapons capability as well as a rocket launcher, both of which are used, and Norman has entirely too much fun with an M60. During the dirt bike racing scene, Jesse rides a Honda CR250, the same make used for stunts throughout the series. We have a new cast member in the opening credits, Jeannie Wilson as Jesse's colleague Rachel Adams. More on her later in the behind-the-scenes segment. And the story element of Jesse still faking the knee injury at work is dropped without explanation. This was George Clooney's first acting role for which he received his SAG card, and of course, more on this later in Behind the Scenes. Decades later, Rex Smith joked, It's quite amusing that I helped George get his Screen Actors Guild card, as this was his first television appearance. I do think he could return the favor by including me as one of the crew, perhaps in Ocean 17. 
Clooney had been an extra in 1978's Centennial, as well as on a 1982 feature film, and had appeared on the season two premiere of Riptide, the prior October, three full months before this Streethawk appearance. So was Streethawk really his first speaking role? Yes, Recall that Streethawk was originally intended to be a fall 1984 show, but was bumped to mid-season. This episode filmed prior to the Riptide episode, even though it aired three months later. Next on Elkins here is wanted in New York. They're sending one of their detectives out to pick him up. Mr. Gerard doesn't like bookkeepers that run off with half a million dollars. You're not a cop. There's no need for that, Cannon. They don't sweat the small stuff, Hollywood. The guy is an animal! He's a bad cop. Nothing's worth having a gun happy cop on the street. Don't kill me! You've got 20 seconds. Get out of here! Episode 3, The Adjuster. January 18th, 1985. On a daytime stakeout, Streethawk interrupts a fencing operation for stolen jewels and makes off as the local cops show up to apprehend the criminals. One of the apprehended suspects is wanted in New York, and a tough, in-your-face NYC cop shows up to extradite him. But after his prisoner gets away at the airport, Jesse is assigned to babysit the visiting officer while they run down leads. But spending time with him makes Jesse suspect he isn't what he appears to be and uses Streethawk to follow up on his suspicions. Guest starring Marjo Gortner, Milt Oberman, Michael Horsley, and Robert Dreyer. Written by Nicholas Correa, directed by Virgil W. Vogel. Yes, this episode featured Marjo Gortner. The unique name of Marjo comes from a combination of Mary and Joe. Gortner, a former child evangelist, entered acting and has been in several cult classic roles, including Pray for the Wildcats, The Food of the Gods, and Star Crash, as well as forgotten TV favorites, WizKids, and Otherworld. The episode received a 16.3 Nielsen rating, losing to a CBS rerun of the film Any Which Way You Can but again beating a new episode of Hunter on NBC. An interesting note, when we hear Jesse speak as Streethawk, his voice is modulated through his helmet, much like is done on modern superhero movies and TV shows. We see great stunts again with Streethawk crashing through large warehouse glass windows, and we see it laser blast out a portion of the wall to use as an improvised ramp. We begin to see Norman's character develop a bit and find he takes vitamins and drinks orange juice. This will develop even further in the next episode as he clashes with Jesse's personality. Get him back! What? Next on Streethawk. Did you talk to the feds? We're giving her safe escort to the federal courthouse in Carson City. We've got exactly seven hours to get her there. What do I... Uh someone like her about whatever pops into your mind i'll just get out of these things while you do it okay oh somewhere between the cabin and carson city linda martin is going to die episode four vegas run january 25th 1985 a vegas showgirl on the run enters jesse and norman's lives when they almost run her over in the street 
Her sister is set to testify against a mob boss, and when it becomes a highway chase in the desert, it's up to Streethawk to ensure she gets delivered to the courthouse in Carson City on time. Guest stars Christopher Thomas, Edward Bell, Christy Hauser, Stephen Liska, Robert Miranda, and special guest star Sybil Danning. Written by Deborah Dean Davis. Directed by Virgil W. Vogel. Yes, 70s adult film star Sybil Danning appears. The Austrian actress received dramatic training from noted drama coach Anne-Marie Hanschke and did appear in a few adults-only type European films, as well as a number of what we would consider R-rated erotic comedies and thrillers. The first U.S. film I find her in was 1973's The Three Musketeers with Oliver Reed and Raquel Welch. Following her move to Hollywood in 1978, she was in a slew of sci-fi, horror, and action genre films and found herself on TV in episodes of Vegas, Simon and Simon, and The Fall Guy. Here we have the first episode that was clearly not scored by Tangerine Dream, as they only scored five episodes beyond the pilot movie. The odd couple interplay between Jesse and Norman is notched up in this episode with Norman's vitamins and protein shakes against Jesse's frozen ding-dongs. Character development added by writer Deborah Dean Davis. Davis had been an early first-season writer on Knight Rider and was responsible for much of the sarcasm and humor integrated into the character of Kit. Davis also gave Streethawk a new ability as the 360-degree rocket-assisted spin in mid-air is debuted. The plot certainly makes use of guest actress Sybil Danning as we get some sexually charged conversation as Linda flirts with Norman. The pencil test gets a mention in conversation, and it's clear Norman has no idea what Linda is talking about. The pencil test is attributed to advice columnist Ann Landers and involves placing a pencil in the inframammary fold, the point at which the underside of the breasts attach to the chest wall. As applied here, it would be a method of determining if a woman's breasts were sagging with age. If the pencil fell to the ground, no sagging is present. Alternately, in the female exotic dancer world, the test could be applied to the buttocks. The ending of this episode was filmed on the Universal Studios Courthouse Square set, made famous by the Back to the Future movies, and featured in countless other TV shows and films. Deborah, I want you to hold on to this for me. What is it? Next on Streetball. All I want is that tape destroyed and Deborah Shane destroyed with it. These men are going to kill her if we don't find her. I ain't going to be no part of turning her into the cops. Deborah Shane is no murderer. If you know who she is, tell me. Whoever the guy was, he took Artie. Artie has nothing to do with this. Nice maneuver. Artie for the tape. Five o'clock this afternoon. I'll pick the spot. Episode 5, Dog Eat Dog, February 1st, 1985. Jesse goes onto the set of a music video to ask popular singer Deborah Shane to do a PSA for the police department. When a male friend of Deborah's entrusts a videotape to her before he is killed, Norman has to analyze the tape while Streethawk protects Deborah from a murderous music executive. Guest stars James Whitmore Jr., Charles Lamkin, Kai Wolf, and Lee Ving. 
Deborah Shane was played by Daphne Ashbrook. In 1985, she was also on The A-Team, Simon & Simon, The Fall Guy, and later had recurring roles on Falcon Crest, Hooperman, Jag, The O.C., and Hollywood Heights. Directed by Daniel Haller, in the first of two episodes he would helm, we get to see quite a bit of the Universal backlot, particularly the Western lot, on this episode where the plot involves music videos being filmed. The script may have been a couple pages short here. There seemed to be a lot of padding in this episode. From the opening credits, where the music video being filmed plays through the entire opening credit sequence, to scenes of Streethawk driving around at night, to Streethawk slowly crawling down Universal's Western Street before his literal shootout with the bad guy. But I will say, tonally, what we are going to get with this series has gelled by this episode. A show very similar not only in structure, but tone as well, compared to what we saw in Auto Man and Knight Rider. Like Auto Man, cover versions of popular songs were sometimes heard during episodes to add to the ambiance, but they weren't used nearly as prominently as that other series. For example, in this episode, a cover of The Safety Dance was heard in the background as diegetic music, where the characters are hearing the same music the viewer hears on the soundtrack. And is it me, or did Norman invent the idea of Google in this episode? Ah, this is archaic. I don't know why these magazines don't program their stories into a computer. Then all we'd have to do is punch in Deborah Shane, and everything that was written about it would pop right up on the screen. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. Why don't you work on it after we finish looking what we're looking for? Yeah, how long is that going to take, if you'd only know? Next on Street Hawk. It's called arson, Norman. Somebody firebombs the place and runs. And you'll tell me who's trying to extort money from you. I always did want to fly one of those. the severe penalties for bribery in this, this state. This is not bribery, just uh, a little conversation. <laughs> he might kill her just to prove his point. Episode 6, Fire on the Wing, airing February 8th. The warehouse district is targeted by an arsonist who is never seen and never leaves clues. Jesse and Norman's investigation leads to an ultralight aircraft dealership and a sabotaged test flight that may prove deadly for Jesse. Meanwhile, Rachel is offered a job by one of the rich warehouse owners, putting her life in danger. Guest stars Kristen Meadows, Teague Andrews, Jerry Burns, and longtime actor Clue Gulliger. Written by John Huff and L. Ford Neal. You may recall the writing team of Huff and Neil wrote three episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker, as well as one episode of Tales of the Gold Monkey and several episodes of Chips. And this is the final episode directed by Virgil W. Vogel, who we'll consider in the next segment. We learn the command center now has radar capable of detecting low-flying aircraft. Some really good stunt flying with ultralight aircraft is seen in this one, Ultralight aircraft have technically been around since the 1920s, but the concept was largely abandoned until hang glider pilots began experimenting with small engines they called glide extenders during the late 1960s. Ultralight as a hobby began to really take off in the 70s. These can be assembled from a kit or purchased complete from a dealer, as depicted in this episode. 
And this episode features the second out of four appearances of supporting actor Raymond Singer as CSI tech Bernie Goldberg, who often provided mild comedy relief as he was approached by Jesse or the commander for answers to various forensic questions. Singer played a similar character on Kojak and was also featured in the series Operation Petticoat and Mama Malone. We saw him pop up on both Future Cop and James at 15, among numerous appearances on TV in the 70s and 80s. He's also popped up in film on 1982's The Entity, Child's Play 2, and if you're a fan, even with the medical mask, you'll recognize him as Chekhov's almost surgeon on Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And there's a behind-the-scenes story from this one we will cover in the next segment. What do you know of the Ivory Emperor? They know you have it. They'll kill you to get it back. So what's in the statue anyway? Drugs? Something much more valuable and dangerous. You left me because I became a cop. Now you're back asking for my help for the same reason. Give me the statue! Get out the statue. Just let her go. I never said goodbye. I missed you. There's going to be a major tongue war, and it looks like she's in the middle of everything. I told her to call you up! Yeah, well, I'm back on the case. Episode 7, Chinatown Memories, airing February 15th. Lily, an old girlfriend of Jesse's, asks for his help when her current boyfriend steals a sacred statue called the Ivory Emperor from the Chinese gang, the Tong. But when the old flame rekindles, it threatens Jesse's identity as Streethawk. Guest stars Sheila McLeod, Beulah Ko, James Saito, Aki Aliang, Sab Shimono, and Ki Luke. Written by Deborah Dean Davis. Based on a story by Deborah Dean Davis and Hannah Shearer. Directed by Paul Stanley. Sheila McLeod was Lily, Jesse's love interest in this episode. The Vancouver-born actress was raised in England, thus her international accent. In the 80s and 90s, she was in a number of TV movies and guest appearances on The A-Team and The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, but she's likely more recognizable to UK audiences due to her roles on several British TV series. This episode had a bittersweet ending, but left the story with the possibility of Lily being a returning character in the future had the series continued. The cover song, What About Me?, featured prominently at the conclusion, where neither Kenny Rogers, Kim Carnes, nor James Ingram did the singing. Unfortunately, the ratings really continued their slide with this episode, placing 50th in 64 shows that week and coming in third that night after Dallas and V the series. The day after this episode aired, it hit the press that ABC announced their intention to drop Streethawk from the Friday schedule in a strategic move to form a family-friendly sitcom block of programming. After years of losing to CBS Powerhouse Dallas on Friday nights with a wide range of programming, the shift represented a return to the classic Friday night scheduling of the 50s through the mid-70s. I will have a full analysis of this in Behind the Scenes. Although the series was placed on hiatus, this was interpreted by several TV reporters as an outright cancellation, but that wasn't officially announced until mid-March. I'm getting an emergency assist on the police frequency. Prison transport, 
Code red. Next on Street Hawk. Sounded like a well-planned assault. I was just surprised no one got away. Don't create a problem where there isn't one. Try that. We placed it between the inner and outer halls. It's going to take some special equipment to get it out of there. Hawk, I'm receiving a military alert. Somebody's hitting an armory. It's golf. This time I've got it. Episode 8, The Unsinkable 453, airing February 22nd. An escape during a prison bus transport leads to the widow of a deposed South American dictator looking to steal $20 million from a ship docked at the port of Los Angeles. Meanwhile, the department is coming under increased fire from the press about Streethawk. Norman is ragging on Jesse about taking better care of Streethawk, and Rachel is busy compiling a psychological profile on Streethawk. When it rains, it pours. Guest stars Maeve Nutter, Greta Blackburn, Raymond Singer, and Bianca Jagger. Written by Robert Walterstorff and Paul M. Bellis. Directed by Kim Manners. This is the only episode directed by Manners, a prolific 80s and 90s TV director whose name became forever connected to The X-Files as he helmed 51 episodes and produced 159 of its original nine-season run. Kim Manners died in 2009 at age 58. And yes, Mrs. Mick Jagger herself was featured in this one. Born Bianca Perez Macias in Nicaragua, Bianca became romantically involved with the Rolling Stones frontman in 1970. Streethawk is one of ten acting credits for her, which also include outings on Miami Vice, Hotel, The Colbys, as well as the films Cannonball Run and Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Here we find out what hanging a cookie means. I'll let you watch it and see for yourself. We find out Streethawk can withstand temperatures up to 2,000 degrees, and we see Streethawk hyperthrust in downtown L.A. traffic. Don't try this at home. Episode 9, Hot Target, March 1st, 1985. Out on patrol away from the city, following a tip, Streethawk interrupts an arms deal, but the bad guys escape via helicopter. Investigating the tail number, the trail leads to a medical research lab where Norman rekindles an old friendship with a female scientist, but a visit to her lab results in Norman's brakes being cut, and Norman taken prisoner, with Jesse forced to launch Streethawk alone. But has Streethawk met its match against a high-powered laser cannon? Guest stars Charles Napier, Joanna Kearns, and George McDaniel. Written by Shell Willens and Deborah Dean Davis. Shell Willens is credited with episodes of Police Story, the Rockford Files, The Greatest American Hero, Automan, Hardcastle and McCormick, and Miami Vice. Director Harvey Laidman joins the Streethawk crew, known for his work on Eight is Enough, The Waltons, Knott's Landing, Tales of the Gold Monkey, and The Dukes of Hazard. Laidman would direct three episodes of Streethawk. And the Tangerine Dream techno score returns as Jesse pursues Charles Napier with a laser cannon. A good-looking prop, and it's no surprise, seeing as it was one that belonged to Universal Studios, appearing in Knight Rider, Airwolf, and other series. 
Norman sends a text message to Jesse's pager via computer terminal. Prior to the introduction of texting via cell phones in 1993, an alphanumeric pager was used to receive text messages from a sender. When Norman's car goes over the cliff, it is clear that the car that is sent over the edge was a stripped-down wreck. A wheel and the tailgate actually fly off while it is still airborne. Then, in the very next establishing shot, Norman's station wagon is seen parked outside the command center. Norman also drives it later in the episode. He must have a government-provided stash of those station wagons. And writer Deborah Dean Davis has given us another woman out of the past, this time out of Norman's past. And the character of Mona, played by Joanna Kearns, is given the potential of returning at the conclusion of the episode, had the series continued. Somewhere around the time this episode was filmed, Kearns also auditioned for the new series, Growing Pains, that would be seen in the fall of 1985. Episode 10, Murder is a Novel Idea, March 8, 1985. In the middle of a case tracking a series of jewelry store heists, Jesse deals with the return of an old friend, a former police officer, now author, stirring up a 20-year-old murder case with her upcoming new book, Putting Herself in Danger. Guest stars Don Hood, John DeSanti, Robert Carnegie, and special guest star Belinda Montgomery. Written by Karen Harris, the Emmy Award winner was a writer, producer, and story editor on The Incredible Hulk before Street Hawk, and later wrote and produced episodes of the two live-action Highlander series, but is primarily known as a writer on daytime dramas, Port Charles, and General Hospital. She also was a producer on Street Hawk, coming on when the show went to series. Belinda Montgomery was, of course, on Man from Atlantis, on the short-lived Aaron's Way, and is likely best remembered from her role as the mother of Doogie Howser, M.D. Directed by Harvey Laidman, this was the final episode airing on Friday night. Only three were left from the 13-episode order, which would be burned off during May. However, multiple newspaper articles were calling this the final episode of the series, even though it had not yet officially been canceled. The week after this episode aired, the official cancellation was announced, along with Hawaiian Heat, Glitter, Paper Dolls, Jesse, and Call to Glory, the series that bumped Street Hawk from its fall debut. Episode 11, The Arabian, May 2, 1985 Extortionists hold a wealthy woman's thoroughbred horse for $2 million ransom, while a beautiful but cocky insurance investigator complicates Jesse's investigation. But when it turns out the real horse is dead, and the one being held is a substitute, the insurance investigator's life is in danger. Guest stars Barbara Stock, B.B. Besh, Jeff Pomerantz, and Walker Edmiston. The Man of 1,000 Voices, both animated and live-action, from the 1960s. This is Tranya. I hope you relish it as much as I. Provider 2, 350 footloose. To the 70s. Show a little respect for old daddy. <laughs> I get to whop him first. To the 80s. F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, Show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. 
Cap's life was not a tragedy. It was an epic story of a great man doing great things for the world. As long as there are heroes in the world, you'll still be with us. And even into the 90s. Written by Joseph Gunn, known for Chips, O'Hara, and the 1989 Dragnet. Directed by Richard Compton, known for The Equalizer, Miami Vice, Babylon 5, Sliders, and Profiler. Norman now has a wireframe dynamic map of the city as Streethawk drives through it, reminding me much of Google Maps or the modern GPS screens in our cars now. One scene was shot at the Pickwick Drive-In in Burbank. The movies on the marquee were Scarface and Terror in the Isles. The drive-in was a popular filming location, being located just a few blocks from several major studios, and was seen in 80s movies Blue Thunder, Explorers, The Outsiders, and Christine. A young Natalie Wood was on hand at the grand opening in 1949, and a rather unique 1974 film premiere of Blazing Saddles was held there. Viewers watched the film on horseback, including stars Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder. After 40 years of operation, the Pickwick sadly closed for good in 1989 and was demolished in favor of yet another shopping center. The final three episodes of the now officially canceled show were airing on Thursdays at 8, 7 central against the top-rated The Cosby Show and Magnum P.I. Not that it mattered all that much. Next on Streethawk. Why would a group of radical terrorists decide to make me their target? It is your responsibility. Get down! I have a habit of appearing wherever there's political unrest. Like he spends the rest of his time underground. Hey! Did I do that? Yes, he did, nurse. He's got a gun. Get down! You're not coming with me. This is my city and you can't stop me. I need backups now! Episode 12, Female of the Species, May 9th, 1985, also known as The Assassin in some overseas markets. On a stakeout to protect a high-profile target arriving at the airport, Streethawk encounters a cross-dressing international hitman, and as Jesse, he clashes with the Fed sent to protect the target. Meanwhile, a magazine writer tries to get close to Jesse, but is after the target herself. Guest stars Ann Turkle, Dennis Franz, Paul Rossili, and Mark Alimo. Written by Karen Harris, directed by Harvey Laidman. Ann Turkle was used on a number of Universal and Glenn Larson shows, such as The Fall Guy, Masquerade, Knight Rider, and Murder, She Wrote. First, I noticed Streethawk has infrared capabilities now, and the particle beam gets used again. And this was a great Streethawk episode. Some online episode guides even rate this as the best episode of the series. Great guest stars, flirting between Jesse and Rachel, as well as some jealousy revolving around the female guest star. Great interplay between Jesse and Norman. We see Streethawk using infrared scanners, and for the first time, Commander Altabelli sees Streethawk firsthand. It's a real shame this aired second to last as one of the burn-off episodes with few people seeing it. Next on Streethawk. To you, he's 
street hawk. To us, he's a member of the 12th Street Protective Association. The cops weren't chasing down that crazy plumber in his neighborhood watch gang. We'd be in jail right now. The cops are never gonna find them gold robber guys. We will. Mock, you're hitting the intercity location. Episode 13, Follow the Yellow Gold Road, May 16, 1985. With the phone company doing maintenance on their network, Norman and the Streethawk Command Center are not at 100%, and Jesse is largely on his own as he goes up against a gold theft operation complicated by an overzealous group of neighborhood vigilantes. Guest stars Catherine Parks, Bert Rosario, Phil Rubenstein, and Robert Costanzo, perhaps best known to some as the voice of Detective Harvey Bullock on Batman the Animated Series. Written by Burton Armas, directed by Daniel Haller. This is the second and last episode by Haller. He did a lot of work for Roger Corman in the 50s and 60s as an art director on some 30 films, and had a legendary ability to find secondhand sets scenery, and props, and turn them into vivid set pieces. Films he worked on included The Wasp Woman, Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow, The Little Shop of Horrors, X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, and designed The Swinging Blade on the Pit and the Pendulum. Films he directed himself include 1965's Monster of Terror with Boris Karloff and 1970's The Dunwich Horror. He later moved to television, helming episodes of Night Gallery, The Sixth Sense, Kojak, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Knight Rider, Manimal, The Fall Guy, and The Highwayman. Whew. In this episode, we see more car chases in the South Mission Road area and Streethawk racing up and down the concrete bed of the L.A. River. Just why anything the phone company does with their network interferes with Norman's visual comms with Streethawk, which would have to be some type of wireless transmission, is not explained. And with this passable but underwhelming final episode, that wrapped up the series for Streethawk. When we come back, we'll go behind the scenes of show production. Streethawk, brought to you by Advanced Formula Crest with Fluoristat. Fighting cavities is the whole idea behind Crest. Introducing the Nighthawk S from Honda. We asked world champion Freddie Spencer to take it for a ride. Because what we find out on the track, you can't find out on the street. Freddie liked the way it handled, the way it accelerated, the way it stopped. In fact, Freddie liked the Nighthawk S so much he never brought it back. Friday, when an island girl is kidnapped, the boys risk their lives to save her. We're not gonna make it, are we? But time's running out for Hawaii and he, then. I'm gonna get you out of here. Matt leads his cousin on a prison escape from Nam. Kill him. But it's a long way home. Come on! For Matt Houston. Oh. All starting at nine, eight central. Friday. Behind the Scenes 
Yes, it was the TV season of 1984-85, to 85, and as Knight Rider entered a third season, its influence was clearly being seen on the TV landscape. While it wasn't a consistently top-rated show during its original run, it absolutely had a following and did peak at number 25 after it was moved to Sunday nights for the 1983-84 TV season. Any show since featuring a super-powered vehicle was inevitably compared to Knight Rider. And even though the show finished its original run 35 years ago, through endless international reruns, it became a worldwide cultural phenomenon. The 1982 modified Pontiac Firebird Trans Am was endlessly used to not only sell the expected spin-off toys and video games. But Knight Rider Power Cycle comes complete with spin-out lever. Your parents have to put it together. New from Coleco. But to advertise, 976 numbers. Call me today at 976-2233 and be sure to get your parents' permission. That must be Michael. Gotta go. Cybersecurity products, candy, smartphone apps, and smart home appliances. We've been through a lot together. I mean, we're a team. Remember that time? Other car brands and the famous car, with or without its esteemed driver, still shows up in TV commercials to this day, in spots for Walmart and South Africa's Chicken Lickin'. Eyes on the road, Michael. Knight Rider was one of many shows that was a Glenn A. Larson production. The often repeated origins of the show involve NBC programming executive Brandon Tartikoff, who took over for Fred Silverman when he left in 1981. Imagining a series called The Man of Six Words, the show could begin with the hero climbing out of a woman's bed saying, thank you. Then he would chase down the bad guys and shout, freeze. Finally, the victims would thank him and he would reply, you're welcome. The hero would also occasionally reply, Okay. See? Six words. In between, the car would do the talking. Of note is that Larson's concept for the show was that of the Lone Ranger, one of those original radio show heroes, with the car as the sidekick. Knight Rider was also produced by Universal Television, the same studio as Street Hawk and was in the middle of its second season during production of Street Hawk's pilot movie. While Street Hawk was not a spin-off or rip-off of Knight Rider, as we'll see, Knight Rider fans may know there was a potential motorcycle-themed spin-off of that series that, if developed, would have been based on a second-season episode called Speed Demons. Written by our old friend Tom Green, who can be heard on Forgotten TV's episode on Tales of the Gold Monkey. Speed Demons featured a disabled motocross rider in danger from a saboteur, discovered when Michael and Kit are investigating the earlier death of another racer. According to the book Knight Rider Legacy, the proposed spinoff would have had a wheelchair-bound man and his brother, fighting crime for the Knight Foundation with the aid of futuristic kit-like motorcycles. In an unusual meeting with Universal Executive Richard Lindheim, Green discussed the story concept, and it was then that this episode was considered to have spin-off potential. When I asked Tom Green about this, he told me the episode and potential series had the working title of Nighthawk, a title Honda would not have been pleased with 
as we'll see in a minute. They also might have gone with Nighthawk, spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, which clearly would have made it a part of the Knight Rider franchise. However, Speed Demons was being written well after the initial draft of the Streethawk pilot script was finished, and production designs were well underway. In fact, Tom Green and his writing partner turned in the script for Speed Demons October 28, 1983, two weeks after the finalized Streethawk design was turned in to the studio. Speed Demons filmed the last week of December 1983, only a month before Streethawk pilot filming began. By the time Speed Demons aired on February 15th, Streethawk was two weeks into filming with Universal obviously not going to produce two competing super motorcycle shows, Speed Demons was never developed as a spin-off, and the studio went with another episode and concept for a Knight Rider spin-off. And who was Tom Green's writing partner on Speed Demons? Janice Hindler, the wife of Automan writer-producer Larry Brody. And how about one more tidbit where Knight Rider got its title that you've never heard anywhere else. A fairly easily found bit of trivia relates the fact that Universal paid an undisclosed sum of money to film director George Romero over the use of the title of the show. George A. Romero's 1981 film, Night Riders, spelled with a K, all one word, was released in April 1981, while Night Rider, the series, debuted in the fall of 1982. As Romero will tell you in the director's commentary on the Blu-ray of the film, in a dispute over the title similarity, Universal renumerated Romero in order to not be required to change the name of their series. Yes, evidently Glenn Larson had learned of the title of the upcoming film and used an extremely similar variation of it for his upcoming series. Tom Green delivers the scoop to Forgotten TV. Glenn had seen posters for Knight Riders and liked it, so he used it for the show. It's funny, since at the time Larson was creating what became Knight Rider, there was a huge billboard for Romero's movie just across the street from Universal. And when his series was announced as Knight Rider, I laughed, realizing that most likely Glenn had seen the billboard every day that he came to the studio and as was his way, thought, hey, I'll use that title. But in an unusual legal decision, Universal had to pay a large sum to Romero for any loss of income for the confusion, and so that Universal didn't have to change the title of their series. Of course, Romero's film sank quickly into oblivion, whereas the series, of course, became a super hit. What was Romero's Knight Rider's film about? a modern-day traveling renaissance troupe that attempt to bring Arthurian ideals such as honor, courage, and chivalry into the modern day, along with jousting on motorcycles. Camelot, that is a state of mind. Night Riders, rated R. As mentioned at the beginning, Street Hawk was based on an original idea from writer-producer Bruce Lansbury. He had pitched to Universal some years earlier, but weren't interested in at the time. After a successful first season of Knight Rider concluded in May 1983, Universal was now interested in developing the concept 
driven primarily by the interest of the president of Universal Television himself, Carrie McCluggage. Instead of the accomplished Lansbury, the relatively inexperienced creative team, Paul Bellis and Robert Walterstorff, were brought in to write and produce a pilot movie. Andrew Probert was called on to design the high-tech motorcycle. We will fully consider the motorcycle design and build in its own upcoming segment. The Streethawk pilot script was finished in October of 1983, although rewrites were made on it up to January. Shooting on the pilot movie started on either January 30th or 31st from backdating some surviving production documents. The show appeared in early March 1984 on ABC's pilot production roster. This was the first time other networks got wind of the show. Streethawk was first announced to the public as a new series during the May upfronts, when new series and schedules are revealed to the press and network affiliates. Other ABC shows announced for that fall included Who's the Boss, Finder of Lost Loves, Call to Glory, Paper Dolls with Morgan Fairchild, and the now nearly forgotten sitcoms Off the Rack and Shaping Up. Streethawk was to be given the coveted lead-in time slot to Monday Night Football for the fall of 1984. Thirteen episodes were ordered and production went underway in July 1984. For the series, ABC requested changes to the show from what had been seen in the pilot movie. Most notably, the replacement of Jane Modine with someone slightly older and a redesign of the bike to make it more intimidating than Andrew Probert's original design. Jeannie Wilson was hired to replace Jane, and designer Ron Cobb was commissioned to modify the bike's design for the series episodes, turning in his final sketches at the end of June. Also during production, the series went through four working titles before settling on the name we now recognize. The show was originally called Falconer. According to Bob Walterstorff, the name was already taken by another Universal pilot, and so another name was necessary. What that other pilot was, I couldn't track down. The title doesn't appear in IMDb or in Lee Goldberg's reference guide on unsold TV pilots so it's likely its name was also changed, or it was never produced. The second working title was Shadowhawk. The producers had moved on to the name Nighthawk by the time the pilot was in production. Yes, the same name tossed around by Knight Rider producers for their potential spin-off concept. Early references in trade publications name Nighthawk as the title of the pilot. This was reflected in the script and was the term used in dialogue. However, Honda, having a motorcycle of the same name, was not amused and sued the producers and Universal for $250 million. As a result, the show's name had to be changed yet again, after the pilot movie had already been filmed. Lines were thus changed in post with ADR, using the new name, with clever editing cutting away from any actor's face when the line is uttered. Streethawk, one word, was the title and name of the motorcycle in the pilot during post-production. Network promotional materials through May 1984 consistently refer to the show as the single word, Streethawk. As of June 1984, while the bike was being redesigned, and just before series episodes began filming, the name was changed a final time, adding a space to make it Street Hawk, two words. 
The in-universe usage of the name also changed, as seen on screen in Hot Target, where Street Hawk appears on a computer monitor used by Norman to call Jesse. Even though Street Hawk was slated to start in the fall at the beginning of the new TV season, by June, ABC execs started to sound like they were reconsidering the decision to slot Street Hawk prior to Monday Night Football, a highly visible time slot where the show likely would have performed very well in the ratings, and go in a different thematic direction with a period drama in that time slot instead. Even so, on August 12th, the first Street Hawk promo aired on the network during the 1984 Summer Olympics closing ceremonies, still promising the show's debut that fall. But the following day, Street Hawk suffered its first major setback. Every hero needs a woman. I hear guys like you are dangerous. Laughlin Tower, this is Eagle One on the market, ready for takeoff. And a family. Let me see. Hey, don't be grabby. It's more than an anchor. How close is Cuba to Texas? Is there going to be a war? Well, the whole world knows what you're doing up there, including those gunners on the ground. Every second counts for those who answer the call to glory. A major television event premiering tomorrow night at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. In a strategy to start airing it early to protect it against competition it would have faced later when the TV season officially began, Call to Glory, a show heavily favored by ABC President Louis H. Elricht, aired Monday, August 13th as a special two-hour premiere movie. The series revolved around the life of a U.S. Air Force colonel and his family living near Edwards Air Force Base during the Cuban Missile Crisis era. The show starred Craig T. Nelson in the lead role. Longtime actor Keenan Wynn and a young Elizabeth Shue also starred. The premiere handily beat a two-hour repeat of Airwolf, as well as what NBC was airing in a ratings landslide. For the following two weeks, Call to Glory also won the ratings for this time slot. And on August 30th, ABC announced that Street Hawk was officially postponed. Even though ABC still considered it a very important reserve series that would air later in the season. The announcement came too late for the September 8th fall preview issue of TV Guide, and a full-page article on Street Hawk appeared, still promoting a fall Monday night time slot. Universal continued working on the Front 13 series order through mid-November, but with a move to mid-season, it was clear Street Hawk would not receive an order for the so-called Back Nine to complete a full season. Call to Glory had been incredibly heavily promoted during the Summer Olympics, with promos masterfully crafted by none other than Larry Sullivan of Sullivan & Associates, who we talked about on the last supplemental podcast regarding ABC and the Still the One era. The promos integrated images of patriotism, bravery, and family unity, and an emotional connection was made with the Olympic viewing audience. More promos aired for Call to Glory than commercials ran for Coca-Cola, the biggest advertiser of the Olympics broadcasts. Commercial time valued at $35 million. Audience research showed an incredible 67% of the TV audience was aware of the upcoming series at the conclusion of the Olympic Games. However strong the show started out, by mid-September, its audience began to dwindle, 
and both TV's bloopers and practical jokes and Scarecrow and Mrs. King were beating it in the ratings, a slide from which the show never recovered, and ABC eventually moved Hardcastle and McCormick into the Monday night lead-in time slot. In late December, ABC's Ernie Anderson, who was also Street Hawk's uncredited opening narrator, began announcing 1985 as the year of the Street Hawk and teasing a January 4th premiere date for the series. The man. The machine. The year of the Street Hawk begins Friday, January 4th on ABC. However, January 4th was a Friday, and this brings us to our second major setback for the series. Instead of the originally promised Monday night lead-in, Street Hawk received a Friday night 9 p.m. 8 central time slot in between the Benson-Webster hour and Matt Houston, and more importantly, against the CBS show responsible for the death of many a Friday night competitor. Being scheduled opposite CBS ratings powerhouse Dallas, months after all the excitement and energy of the new fall season was over, Mint Street Hawk had a very difficult road ahead. Dallas was in the middle of its eighth season, but still was the number two show on the air for that TV season, with some episodes getting better than a 40 share of the viewing audience. While Street Hawk held its own against NBC's V, the series, both shows were usually over a dozen full ratings points behind Dallas, and as we'll examine, there were other events brewing behind the scenes, working against the series. According to Bob Waltersdorf, the initial choice of the producers for the role of Jesse Mock was a handsome new actor by the name of George Clooney. Indeed, Knight Rider producer Tom Green recalls Universal Casting Director Melvin Johnson, who also did casting for WizKids and Tales of the Gold Monkey, discussing Clooney for the Street Hawk role. Another actor considered for the role was Don Johnson. However, he became unavailable when the series Miami Vice was picked up by NBC for the fall of 1984. When the casting choices were presented to ABC, the network nixed Clooney in favor of 28-year-old Rex Smith. In the 70s, Rex had been a singer and teen idol, featured regularly in magazines like Sixteen and Tiger Beat. After being lead singer for various bands, Rex moved to Broadway, where he was the understudy for the lead role of Danny Zuko in Greece. Smith got his break on television in 1979, being cast on the NBC TV movie Sooner or Later, also starring Barbara Feldon and Judd Hirsch. Rex not only starred, but his voice was featured on the soundtrack in the songs Better Than It's Ever Been Before, Shades of Blue, Simply Jesse, Sooner or Later, Get It On, and the breakout hit You Take My Breath Away, which reached number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The songs were released on Rex's third studio album, which also served as a soundtrack album to the TV movie. The following year, he guest starred on The Love Boat as Vicky Stubing's rock star crush, who performed an entire song 
for the episode. Also in 1980, Rex joined the cast in the role of Frederick on The Pirates of Penzance on Broadway, a role he also performed in the 1983 feature film. In 1982, Rex replaced Andy Gibb as host and performer alongside Marilyn McCoo on the syndicated music variety show, Solid Gold. Welcome to Countdown 82, a Solid Gold special presenting the top 40 songs of 1982, starring Rex Smith and Marilyn McCoo. In 1983, he auditioned for the role of Jesse Mock for a TV pilot project then titled Falconer. In addition to his musical past, Rex also used to race motorcycles and was a skilled writer prior to auditioning for the Streethawk role. Casting for the series was a lengthy process involving multiple auditions and screen tests for various producers, Universal Studios, as well as ABC. To his auditions held in New York, he would actually ride his motorcycle and walk in with his helmet and riding leathers on. After several of these screen tests, he finally looked in the camera and addressed the executives directly, and told them they had found their Jesse Mock. Ahead of filming the infamous underwear tube scene for the pilot and shown at the beginning of every episode in the series opening, Rex says he fortified himself with margaritas from Mexican restaurant Casa Vega located about 15 minutes down Ventura Boulevard from the studio. George Clooney received a consolation prize of sorts, being featured on the first series episode, A Second Self from which he got his SAG card. He also says while he enjoyed his time filming the episode, he recalls costing the studio some coin during Street Hawk production. I played a bad guy. I loved it. I played a rich guy, so they had me wearing this $8,000 Rolex watch. It was the last day of shooting, and there's a foot chase on a pier. The watch slips off my wrist and falls into the ocean. They never found it. Then there's a scene at Universal where I'm driving one of the General Lee cars that had been painted black. And there's a camera mounted on the hood. The director wants me to accelerate to about 60, cut the wheel, and flip it into a U-turn. But no one told the security lady what we were doing. Action! So I come around the corner, and here comes a bus loaded with tourists. I lose control of the car and smack into a light pole. The pole falls totals the car, and smashes the camera. I'm told those cameras aren't cheap. I'm thinking, geez, I'm going to kill a hundred people and ruin my career in the process. But everybody on the bus thinks it's part of the tour, and they applaud like crazy. Actress Jane Modine was cast in the pilot movie as Jesse's police colleague, Sandy McCoy. Modine was a former magazine model, who had a regular role in Glenn Larson's short-lived Trauma Center. According to producer Bert Armis, ABC thought she was too young-looking for the part, and she was replaced with someone slightly more mature. The character was thus retooled and renamed Rachel Adams, and 37-year-old Jeannie Wilson was cast in the role when the series went into production. A Memphis native, her family moved to Dallas in 1960, after attending Stephen F. Austin U, as well as SMU, she was a regular on the beauty pageant circuit, earning the titles Miss Nacogdoches, Miss Dallas, and Miss Texas USA. 
She did some modeling and acting with her first screen credit being a minor role appearing alongside John Agar in the 1967 low-budget sci-fi horror film Night Fright, directed by Texas filmmaker James Sullivan, who had been the film editor on the infamous Monos, The Hands of Fate. She moved to L.A. to pursue acting full-time in 1976 and immediately landed a two-line role for Universal Television's Gemini Man with Ben Murphy. Wilson then appeared on a number of additional Universal productions, The Bionic Woman, BJ and the Bear, House Calls, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, WizKids, and The A-Team. In 1981, she was part of the original cast of Phil Daguerre's series, Simon and Simon, appearing in a total of 30 episodes. She and her husband, actor Jack Lucarelli, got along well with Simon's Jameson Parker and Gerald McCraney, even teaming up for a film project during hiatus, directed by Simon's Gary Grillo. Jackals, released in 1986, focused on the issue of human trafficking across the U.S.-Mexico border. However, Wilson's experience with production company Universal was uneven. Universal was interested in distributing Jackals, but would not participate in financing the film, causing the team to seek other funding. Wilson, along with co-star Mary Carver, also got in a tiff with Universal over car clearance when the pair were forced to pay for parking off-lot. Lastly, when Simon & Simon was retooled a second time for the third season, adding Tim Reed as Downtown Brown as the Simon Brothers' police contact, Wilson and supporting co-star Eddie Barth were unceremoniously let go from the series. To be perfectly honest with you, I was devastated. It hurts a lot. I think it's been handled poorly, especially since we've all been together on the show so long. No one ever called me and told me there was going to be a new character added. I don't know. I think they could handle these things on a more personal level instead of just letting you hear it in the wind. But that's the business. You've got to expect those things. You can't let it get you down. I've told my agent I'm available. You know, I'm trying out for everything I can. Hopefully, I can get something else. Wilson was then cast as series regular on Street Hawk. 34-year-old Joe Rigalbuto was cast as Norman Tuttle, Street Hawk designer and mission control operator. Apart from being an extra in background scenes of 1977's The Goodbye Girl, Rigalbuto's first audition, screen test, and role was on Paramount Television's The Associates as Elliot Streeter, junior associate at the law firm of Bass & Marshall. He had just moved from Manhattan to Santa Monica with his young family in tow and found living in the LA area necessitated buying his first car. Three years later, he found himself cast in another short-lived series, Ace Crawford, Private Eye, with Tim Conway. Eight guest spots later, Rigalbuto was added to the cast of Street Hawk. According to producer Burton Armis, Joe was a consummate professional, a fine character actor who added a great deal to the series and nailed most of his scenes. Rounding out the cast was 60-year-old Richard Venture as the man in charge of Jesse and Rachel at police headquarters, Lieutenant Commander Leo Altabelli. Born in New York City, Venture started on television in 1958 on Playhouse 90, but his career really took off in the 70s on shows like 
Harry O., Policewoman, Cannon, and Kojak. Although he had short-lived recurring roles on Falcon Crest and Newhart, most of his appearances were one-offs, many times portraying a police official. Streethawk was his first regular series role. Unfortunately and predictably, several TV critics called Streethawk a copy of Knight Rider. David Handler asked, Is there any actual difference between Streethawk and Knight Rider? Answer, yes. Two Wheels. Knight Rider is a TV comic book about a young, hunky guy with wavy hair who dresses in black and zips around in a futuristic auto, zapping bad guys. Street Hawk is a TV comic book about a young, hunky guy with wavy hair who dresses in black and zips around on a futuristic motorcycle, zapping bad guys. Mark DeWitziak said, Take a little bit of Knight Rider, Batman, Airwolf, Chips, The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Green Hornet. Mix carelessly, and you've got Street Hawk. It can be argued that this is kid stuff, but since Street Hawk glamorizes excessive speeds on motorcycles, that makes it all the more reprehensible. And the syndicated TV Tonight column just came out and said it was a blatant, horrid ripoff of Knight Rider. Yikes. I found numerous reviews that read basically the same. In fact, I couldn't find a single positive review for Street Hawk. However, I'm betting the 10- to 15-year-old target audience watching on Friday nights had a different opinion, of which I was one. As Walt Belcher correctly pointed out, Street Hawk is aimed at young males who like to watch their heroes tear up the streets in supercharged vehicles. Well, yeah, what boy didn't envision Streethawk riding his orange 1977 Honda Express scooter with face shield down? Streethawk was produced at Universal Television and was a Limekiln and Templar production, which was the production company formed by Bellis and Walterstorff in 1980, the failed sitcom pilot Pen and Ink being its first production. Robert Walterstorff has long used the Limekiln name, he currently uses it on LinkedIn. The Templar Productions name was used by Paul Bellis until 2016. Limekiln and Templar thus represented the team-up of Bob Walterstorff and Paul Bellis. As far as the meaning of the names, I wasn't able to track down anything concrete. First, a note about the opening segment. Unlike Knight Rider, Airwolf, Auto Man, and virtually every other action-adventure show of the era, Street Hawk did not use video graphics to display the title on screen. Instead, practical lettering was physically mounted to a transparency and rotated on an axis with a key light shining from underneath and filmed to create the title for the series opening. The remaining credits were done with normal videographic titling. Interiors for Street Hawk were shot on two sound stages at Universal, and various episodes made use of the Universal backlot. Star Rex Smith recalls the Universal lot as one of the worst places in the world to shoot a TV series. The rule was that public tours took precedent, so we had about six minutes between tours in which to run around filming as fast as possible before the next one arrived. But we had some fun with them. I would get out and wheelie past the tour buses. All you could hear was, Look, there goes Street Hawk. I'd get a kick out of that. 
people's mouths would drop. However, much of the footage was shot on location, either in the desert areas outside LA or in an industrial area just east of downtown. In fact, many stunt and street filming sequences were done on and around South Mission Road in the neighborhood where 4th Street crosses it. It's a non-residential area with a lot of warehouses and industrial-looking buildings. Many scenes show Street Hawk riding down South Mission, Jesse, Artemis, and adjacent streets, as well as the nearby L.A. River, prominently noticeable in several episodes. The location used for the exterior of the command center, where Street Hawk would emerge from a secret opening, was a brick warehouse located at 362 South Mission Road, which runs parallel to the L.A. River one block west. The warehouse door Street Hawk was launched out of is still there. During filming, a fake billboard was placed in front of it, which we will talk about at length. The building is now occupied by Hybco USA, who packages and distributes cooking oils for the food industry. Several versions of Street Hawk blasting out onto the street were shot and reused throughout the series. In one version, often reused in early episodes, you'll notice a man sitting in a white delivery box truck down the street present every time Street Hawk barrels down Artemis Street, which runs perpendicular to South Mission. However, the establishing shot of the command center that showed Jesse and Norman's cars parked outside was that of an entirely different building, that of a two-story industrial building or warehouse, while the Hybco warehouse on South Mission is a single-story warehouse. Following information posted by Josh from Street Hawk Online, my guess is this location was adjacent to the 700 block of 1st Street, just west of downtown LA in an industrial block that has since been demolished and raised for parking lots in what is now the Little Tokyo Arts District. The California Bank and Doubletree Hotel downtown can be seen in some angles where this establishing shot is used and their size and relative position can be used to estimate the location where this building once was. Scenes from several episodes were also filmed at and around the Santa Monica Pier, and the famous Loof Hippodrome building can be spotted in some scenes. Jesse's apartment, as seen in the pilot, is a townhouse on Whipple Street in North Hollywood, and it is still there. This was just tracked down during the writing of this podcast by Street Hawk fan Chris Granger. Jesse's beachfront condo used throughout the rest of the series was on Driftwood Beach in Marina del Rey. Over the last 35 years, they have enlarged the structure and expanded it to the edge of the property line facing the beach. It now has a rooftop gazebo and three stories. The Machine Street Hawk itself was designed by concept designer and illustrator Andrew Probert. Probert had served in the Navy and studied at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. While still attending art school, he, along with the rest of the world, were thrilled by the new film Star Wars, and his interest in science fiction, as well as film design, was piqued. This caused him to look up Star Wars production artist Ralph McQuarrie to interview him for the Art College newspaper. When his car died and he couldn't get to class anymore, he was in desperate need for work. 
Macquarie introduced him to John Dykstra and Joe Johnston, who were working on a new project for Universal called Star World. They looked at his art and hired him to do some robot designs for the production, the name of which was changed to Battlestar Galactica, and his designs came to life as the notorious Cylons bent on the destruction of the human race. That same year, he also started working for Robert Abel and Associates to work on Star Trek The Motion Picture, where he worked as a concept designer illustrator. When Abel's group was replaced, see Forgotten TV episode 29 on Gene Roddenberry for a discussion on the difficulties on the production for this film, Andrew survived the transition to the group working under new effects supervisor Douglas Trumbull. Probert was primarily responsible for designing the refitted Starship Enterprise, Space Dry Dock, Orbital Office Complex, Travel Pod, Worker Bee, and the Vulcan Shuttlecraft. His concept sketches for the bridge of the Klingon Battlecruiser set the style for all future Klingon ship interiors. In 1983, Probert returned to television, creating the look and designs for Airwolf, then was brought on to work on Streethawk, whose initial design took approximately a week. The overall design was finalized November 29, 1983, and work on the special features such as the laser cannon was done until mid-December. Initially given full control of the design, he says this changed when producers started adding requests to the design. The producer saw some custom bike with ridiculous gold brakes and had to have them on Streethawk. That design also included a chain drive, which didn't work at all for me on a 300 mile per hour system. But it was what they wanted, so that's what they got. Probert also expressed some disappointment in how the design turned out. Because my original concepts were designed to accommodate their requirement that Streethawk be able to go from a dirt bike system to a racing system. In order to have that, I proposed that the bike morph from one to the other. I designed a super shaft drive unit that would have covered the difference between the chain drive dirt bike skeleton and shaft drive street bike skeleton along with enclosed racing wheels to further establish the bike's capabilities. When they insisted on the wild wheels because they look cool, I think it diminished the believability of Streethawk. Yes, Probert's original design was sleeker and more futuristic looking than the final version. A design strongly resembling the flying turbine motorcycles, albeit without the wing flaps, piloted by Troy and Dylan from Universal's Galactica 1980. Still, Probert praised the motorcycle builders for the impressive job they did. The Streethawk pilot motorcycles used in the pilot movie were 1982 Honda XL500Rs, mechanically modified by Motorcyclist magazine staffers Jeff Carr and Dexter Ford in their Hancock Park, Los Angeles garage. The pair combined an electric starter from a Honda 500 Ascot with the chassis of a dual-sport Honda XL500R. Dexter Ford recalled the experience when contacted by Street Hawk Command Center Facebook group admin John Rollins. 
Yes, Jeff and I did the mechanical bits for the first two Streethawk bikes in our garage in Echo Park, just south of downtown L.A. It was a wild ride. They found us because of a project bike they liked in Motorcyclist, we were both staffers, that we had built. They were frantic. We were working full time, so we had to do the whole thing at night in our off hours. Work till 6, go home, eat, work all night, fall in bed at 3, up at 8, back to work. They paid us handsomely, though. Enough money to buy a nice Mooney M20C private airplane. So that was the upside. We were never invited to the sets. We built the first two rush bikes, handed them off to the body guy, cashed our checks, and ran. The producers wanted us to do the body work as well, but we said no. They, the producers, art director, stunt guy, were too sketchy, and we figured we'd never hear the end of changes, problems, etc. So we stuck to the mechanicals. We took three bikes they supplied, two Honda XL500Rs, I believe, and a 500 Ascot. Our main challenge was to transplant the electric start Ascot motor into one of the XLs, so there would be no need to kickstart, with all the bodywork in the way. Might have been the first electric start Honda XL. Their stunt coordinator, I forget his name, was pretty crazy. He wanted us to make a bike that could actually jump, vertically, in three weeks. In our garage, cooler heads prevailed, and they did the jumping thing using movie magic instead. Not sure I'd want to be on a bike as it was launched straight up into the air. He also wanted to make a Streethawk bike using a Honda CX500 Turbo as a base, so he could go way too fast. The XLs would do 90 miles per hour and wheelie on demand, so we nixed that idea too. As I said, we did the engine and chassis stuff, and they farmed out the bodywork to some Hollywood bodywork guy. A guy who is probably still mumbling to himself. The movie folks did the sketches of the bike, then handed them off to the bodywork paint guy. Up and away. The some Hollywood bodywork guy was none other than Gene Winfield of Gene Winfield Rod and Custom Construction the same shop involved in building the Galileo shuttlecraft for Star Trek, the vehicles in Blade Runner, and Centauri's star car in The Last Starfighter. Since only one electric starter was installed, the other XL500R remained a kickstart, and this can be seen on one of the bikes used in the pilot movie. Bob Waltersdorf expressed his opinion of the way the pilot motorcycle turned out. As I mentioned before, it was a huge undertaking to actually manufacture the bike and produce the series. We knew we wanted the look of a cafe racer, but also grabbed ideas out of a custom motorcycle magazine. We also wanted the side flaps for the pilot backflip stunt, and we liked the hidden headlight and the blue outline lights. I was satisfied with the look, and I think the design was ahead of its time, thanks to Mr. Probert. Of course, following the pilot movie production, changes were made to the motorcycle. A more aggressive visual style was requested, and the addition of a machine gun was mandated by ABC. However, for the redesign, Universal brought aboard Ron Cobb, who had designed creatures for 1977 Star Wars, as well as concept designs for Alien, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Conan the Barbarian, and The Last Starfighter. The bike's nose would now conceal a missile launcher, in addition to those machine guns. 
in-universe, supposedly twin-compact M60s adapted by Norman. The body of the bike is also different from the bike in the pilot episode. There was less detail in the exhaust, and the body of the cycle was wider. Cobb turned in his sketches at the end of June 1984. This second design of Streethawk was seen in Episode 2, A Second Self. A third design featured a much rounder nose, and a fourth seemed to mix features of styles 1 and 3. Designs 3 and 4 can be seen throughout Episodes 3 through 13. What were the reasons for the redesigns? According to series expert and Streethawk replica builder Timothy Canterbury, the series bikes were simpler to build and maintain. The high-volume airboxes, side panel covers, and side exhaust tubes were all one joined piece, which was much easier to remove and replace than the pilot version where these were multiple pieces. The stock seat was used on the series bikes instead of the four-piece custom seat of the pilot bike. Instead of the two-piece fiberglass handlebar weapons pods on both handlebars as seen in the pilot, the master cylinder was left exposed on the right handlebar, and a single aluminum box was used on the left for buttons. While the series bike looked more aggressive because of the extra weapons and bulk, all these changes simplified repairs needed during series production. According to Bob Walterstorff, One of the big problems was the battery life for the lights and other equipment on the bike. They had a very short lifespan and had to be replaced almost after each scene. For series episodes, three 1983 Honda XR500R off-road motorcycles with 497cc four-stroke engines and five-speed gearing capable of a top speed of 93 miles per hour were used for the so-called hero bike scenes, non-stunt scenes where the motorcycle could be seen in detail. Some of these scenes indeed featured Rex Smith riding the motorcycle, 11 Honda CR250s were also modified throughout the production of the series. The CR250s were used primarily for stunt work. Just who built the series bikes is still unclear. Many series experts point out the sculpting, fit, and finish of the series bikes just weren't as polished as were the two motorcycles finished by Winfield and team for the pilot movie. Therefore, the thinking is that the series bikes were built by Universal's in-house special effects department. As the bikes were constantly being used for stunts, they were in constant need of repair. Producers contracted a motorcycle shop three miles from the studio to supply the parts that were in constant demand. Six bikes were kept on standby, ready to step in for stunt filming. When the first unit would film on a soundstage or in the back lot, the stunt crew would be out on their location, filming with a stunt rider, performing with the bike. Star Rex Smith would only ride the motorcycle with the first unit filming crew, and not with the second stunt unit. Jesse Mock's helmet seen in the series was an onyx black Ghibli, made by DIWS in Italy. Design characteristics of the Ghibli helmets featured a retractable visor set inside the helmet instead of overlapping on top of the shell and a revolutionary opening mechanism for one-handed operation. They also featured a thumb release lever for the chin strap, again for one-handed operation. This was operated by Jesse in the show, and in the pilot, Norman had the ability to remotely open and close the helmet.
In the series, Jesse himself was given this ability, and the manual operation of the helmet visor was dropped. Minor changes were also made to the heads-up display seen by Jesse in the series. In the pilot movie, Jesse Mock's Street Hawk outfit was a very well-fitted, black-with-silver piping, racing-style suit with protective padding incorporated into the design. The suit was complemented by tall black riding boots with white stitching that rose up to mid-calf, and a black turtleneck undershirt, completely concealing his entire body with helmet shield down. The outfit was slightly redesigned for series episodes, not quite as tightly fitted, and the undershirt was ditched in favor of a zippered jacket that zipped all the way up his neck. This allowed for scenes of a relaxed Jesse back at the command center with bare chest visible. A surviving Street Hawk costume is currently owned by Rex Smith. And let's not leave out Jesse's personal vehicle, a 1969 yellow and black Ford Mustang Mach 1, a vehicle which received its own model kit release by MPC in 1984. And to be complete, I'll mention Norman's 1979 Chevrolet Impala station wagon. After all, we saw it magically regenerate on the series after it was destroyed by driving off a cliff. What became of the motorcycles at the conclusion of the series? At the end of production, 12 of the remaining Street Hawk bikes were sold to a collector for $3,800. From time to time, screen-used Street Hawk motorcycles show up at auctions and on eBay, so it's not impossible to obtain one. One such model was sold on eBay in September 2000 for $12,000. It was purchased by Chris Bromham, one of the original stunt jumpers from the show. The bike he bought looked pretty good from a distance, but up close had clearly seen better days, as displays and dash modules were completely missing. Over time, he rebuilt and completely restored it to its original screen appearance. Another of the screen-used bikes is now owned by the Cars to the Stars Museum in London, where it is on display along with a surviving kit from Knight Rider, a Back to the Future DeLorean, and both remaining GMC A-Team vans from the original production. The legendary Gene Winfield, who came to national prominence in 1959 with his quad headlight Jade Idol 1956 Mercury, went on to build vehicles for both Trancers and Robocop. He is often called the last surviving titan of the golden custom car age. He was honored as Builder of the Year in 2008 at the Detroit Autorama, and at 93, he may no longer work those 15-hour days but refuses to retire altogether. People ask me when I'm going to retire, and you know what I tell them? When they put me in the ground, that's when. The year after Andrew Probert designed Street Hawk, he went on to work on the time-traveling DeLorean for Back to the Future, continuing to refine designs originated by colleague Ron Cobb. In 1986, Paramount and Gene Roddenberry again tapped him to work on designs for an updated series that would feature a new Starship Enterprise and crew. Initially just brought on to work on the bridge interior, his personal sketches for a new version of the legendary Starship inspired writer David Gerald to show them to producers, and Probert ended up designing the new Enterprise D and virtually all ships seen in the first season 
of Star Trek The Next Generation, including the Romulan Warbird and Ferengi Cruiser. And he was finally able to bring to the screen the concept of starship separation he had originally envisioned for the motion picture. His other work on film includes Batteries Not Included, Space Camp, Mask, and The Philadelphia Experiment. He also worked as a show designer at Walt Disney Imagineering. Andrew Probert continues to work on designs for film and TV and makes the occasional convention appearance. The highly intelligent Ron Cobb, who never had a college degree nor any formal training in graphic illustration, ended up designing the blueprints for much of our collective sci-fi and fantasy film history. Close Encounters, The Abyss, Robot Jocks, Total Recall, True Lies, Firefly, not to mention the armor and swords on Conan the Barbarian. At the turn of the millennium, Jim Bissell brought him on board the film The Sixth Day to design the Whispercraft. Credits you won't find on IMDb include Cats and Dogs, District 9, and John Carter on Mars. Ron always brought a practical engineering side to his designs, and his work on Close Encounters and the Alien films in particular set the tone for spaceship design for the next few decades. Even though he's already left us, passing away in 2020 at age 83, his designs continue to influence a new generation of filmmakers. Let's take a look at some additional behind-the-scenes names we shouldn't overlook. More than a third of series episodes were directed by Virgil W. Vogel. His name pops up on show after show from this era, and with 81 directing credits, it's no surprise. Virgil W. Vogel began his career at Universal in 1940 as an assistant editor. He worked as an editor for many years, although by the mid-50s he had begun to tire of the job and pressed Universal Executive Edward Moule for a shot at directing. Vogel was handed The Mole People in 1956 with John Agar, and his capable handling of that film led to other assignments at the studio. Vogel later directed many made-for-television movies, as well as episodes of TV's Bonanza, Wagon Train, M Squad, The Six Million Dollar Man, Mission Impossible, Quantum Leap, Spencer for Hire, and many others. Vogel died in 1996 at age 76. Harvey Laidman, director of three episodes, was an often-used director for Universal. In fact, when Tom Green wanted to book Laidman for Knight Rider in 1984, he found the director was scheduled for multiple episodes of Street Hawk. Following his graduation from USC Cinema School, he worked for KTTV, Metro Media, in Los Angeles for three years, then was accepted into the Director's Guild of America producer training program, working at Universal Studios and on series such as The High Chaparral and Bonanza. He continued at Universal Studios as an assistant director on features and television and then worked at Lorimar Productions, where he was a production manager and an assistant director, getting his first directing assignment on The Waltons in 1975. His last directing credit was for Seventh Heaven in 2004. Under art director William H. Tunkey, Francis Frank Pezza and Bob Gilson were the initial set design team assigned the pilot and subsequent five shows. 
If Bill Tunkey's name sounds familiar, he was the German-born art director and production designer who worked on a number of TV series and movies from Disney films of the 60s such as Mary Poppins and That Darn Cat, to Gomer Pyle, Kojak, Buck Rogers, and Tales of the Gold Monkey, where he designed The Monkey Bar and other series sets, intentionally modeling them after the 1961 film The Devil at Four O'Clock. This offered producers a rare opportunity to integrate footage from that film into an episode and add production value that could never have been afforded on the series budget. Streethawk was the last project he worked on. Bill Tunkey died in 1997 at age 90. The other half of episodes were done by Hub Braden, who provided set and production design and art direction on film and TV for nearly six decades. He was the set designer on the first season of Star Trek, as well as Hogan's Heroes, and did production or art design for Super Train, Alice, and Buck Rogers. He also did scenic and production design for several Disneyland productions, such as the Tomorrowland Stage Show, the original Main Street Electrical Parade, and the Bicentennial Disneyland America on Parade. One Bill Tunkey addition to Streethawk was the billboard the Streethawk launch tube was hidden behind, a weathered, aged ad for the fictional Maxi Cola, world's favorite soft drink. The billboard was placed in front of this secret exit and would split down the middle and slide open horizontally, and Streethawk would emerge, blasting out onto the street below. While I found no evidence of a soft drink by that name, this was likely a reference to Moxie Cola, which has been around since the late 19th century. It was originally sold as a patent medicine, then actually was one of the first mass-produced soft drinks in the U.S., patented in 1885, a year before Coca-Cola. The soda was said to have a similar taste to root beer, as it was flavored with an actual root extract that left a bitter aftertaste. Although many outside New England states have never heard of it, Moxie stuck around as a regional drink, extremely popular in Maine for the next hundred years, and after several ownership changes, was officially acquired by Coca-Cola in 2018. And if you're wondering, yes, the common usage of the now somewhat dated term Moxie, referring to bold determination and spunk, indeed originates in the advertising campaigns for Moxie Cola. Now recall that on the Green Hornet TV series, the Black Beauty would emerge from behind a billboard advertising a fictitious product, which would split down the middle, slide open horizontally, then slide closed, again concealing the secret entrance. Yes, this element of Streethawk was directly lifted from the 1966 Green Hornet series, also produced by Universal. Jim Michaels, one of the three technical wizards responsible for Ralph on WizKids, was visual effects producer on Streethawk. He also did visual effects on Otherworld, Airwolf, Knight Rider, Misfits of Science, and Probe, among other series. He expanded into producing on Midnight Caller and Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, was producer and showrunner of Supernatural on The CW, and now is the co-executive producer of the Amazon series, The Boys. 
Louis Schwartzberg, now an award-winning cinematographer, director, and producer whose notable career spans more than three decades, did special visual and photographic effects on the show, and was undoubtedly responsible for the hyperthrust visual sequences. He specializes in time-lapse, high-speed, and macro cinematography, and his footage was seen in Otherworld, as well as the films American Beauty, The Bourne Ultimatum, E.T., Independence Day, Jerry Maguire, Men in Black, and Twister, among others. Close your eyes, take a deep breath, and think of Rex Smith. You take my breath away, and I don't know what to say. If you're among the millions who fell in love with Rex Smith in the TV movie Sooner or Later, you can hear more Rex Smith magic on his new album, Sooner or Later, on Columbia Records and Tapes. facts I came across, both well-known and obscure, during research indicate everything was not all sunshine and roses on the set of Street Hawk, and that the production faced a variety of issues almost from the beginning. One of the first challenges faced was that lawsuit from Honda over the Nighthawk name in use at the time. Honda had an established trademark with the Nighthawk name for a line of motorcycles starting in 1982. The TV series in question essentially starred a motorcycle. Honda was a motorcycle brand, and thus there was potential for some consumer confusion, especially since the motorcycles used in the show were modified Hondas. Thus, in order to protect their trademark, Honda sued Limekiln and Templar Productions and Universal for $250 million, which spurred yet another name change for the series as we've covered. Walter Storff states Honda did not drop the lawsuit until the show was canceled. Another issue was the show's budget. The show was expensive to produce, but being an action-filled, stunt-driven show was continually running up against budget limitations and could have used an even larger budget to fully realize the series concept. I mentioned at the outset that the creative team chosen to develop Bruce Lansbury's original concept and run the series was Paul Bellis and Robert Walterstorff, who, while they had experience writing for TV comedy and producing their own half-hour pilot and TV movie, had never run a television series. Although I have read every newspaper, magazine, interview, and website regarding Street Hawk I can find, all the producers involved had been relatively tight-lipped about the origins and early production of the series. Bruce Lansbury and Paul Bellis have done no interviews I can find, only a very few newspaper quotes for period articles on Street Hawk. Robert Walterstorff was interviewed by Josh from Street Hawk Online in 2008, and some of the quotes I attribute to him are from that interview. Burton Armas was interviewed in 2005 by Dan Rindell for Two Wheels Only magazine, and many of the quotes presented here are from that article. 
One indication that things may not have been going as smoothly as they could have been was the addition of Burton Armis to the list of producers for series episodes following production of the pilot movie. Armis, a veteran detective for the NYPD, was hired to be the technical advisor on the TV series NYPD in 1967, and later was picked by Telly Savalas to act as technical advisor for Kojak in 1973. He then left the department and started working in TV full-time, serving as a consultant, advisor, or writer on Del Vecchio, Policewoman, Vegas, and The Fall Guy. With this experience under his belt, he says he started being used by Universal as a troubleshooter to assist TV productions, and had just come off working on the first season of Airwolf prior to Streethawk. The addition of Armis made for seven credited producers on the set of Streethawk, although it is likely not all of them were there in a hands-on capacity. Bert Armis himself said that Bruce Lansbury received a supervising producer credit in name only and was not really involved in the production. I'll also add that following Streethawk, Armis is credited with moving on to Knight Rider in the middle of season three, something he frames as being assigned by Universal to rescue a troubled show that was shut down at the time. However, Knight Rider producer Tom Green was there for season three, and has an entirely different account of the production. I was, of course, very much around during that time, and I can tell you with my own experience that I never encountered Mr. Armis on our show, and there never was a troubleshooter on the show, never a need for one. The show ran extremely smoothly. As I said before, as with all shows, there were some growing pains as it found its footing, but by the middle of the first season, that was all worked out. And by the second season and beyond, as you can see from the episodes, it was a fine-tuned machine. The staff on Knight Rider through the seasons were a terrific team of accomplished talents and experienced writer-producers. Again, the show was never in trouble, and no one from outside ever had to come in to rescue it. This is the first time I've heard of this, and like so many stories in our biz, it seems to have been created out of whole cloth. This would be in line with Robert Walterstorff's comment regarding Armis. Just to set the record straight, Bert was on staff, but he never really produced anything. He did get into a fight on the set with a teamster once. Bert Armis later worked as a producer and writer for the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as the circa 1990 revivals of Dragnet and Adam-12. A humorous side note, Next Generation Trek fans will undoubtedly recall the Season 1 episode, Skin of Evil, where series regular Tasha Yar is killed by a black, oily, sentient puddle of evil known only as Armus. I do not serve things evil. I am evil. Yes, even though he isn't credited with work on The Next Generation until Season 2, Bert Armis had obviously already made a name for himself with the Season 1 Trek staff. The other producers working on the show were Stephen Craig, Karen Harris, and Medora Heilbrunn. Craig had worked on Angie, Walking Tall, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Armis recalls Craig as the hard-working line producer that kept the series running. Following Streethawk, Craig went on to run Doogie Howser, M.D., and more recently, How to Get Away with Murder. 
Karen Harris, who we mentioned during the episode rundown, also wrote two episodes of the series and had written for and produced The Incredible Hulk. She went on to be a lead writer on General Hospital for some nine years of production during the 90s and 2000s. Medora Heilbronn was credited as an associate producer, as she had done on both Wonder Woman and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. She left the entertainment industry not long after Streethawk and now runs her own business as an at-home entertainment stylist, designing visually appealing parties and events. Some of the trouble on set was due to the inexperience of showrunners Bellis and Walterstorff, according to Bert Armas. Streethawk was an hour-long action-adventure format show that was technically challenging, with not only a principal photography unit, but a second stunt unit for every episode, many times performing stunts on location. Bert Armas. Streethawk was as difficult as are all action stunt shows, and in this case, a little more so since the bike was too fragile for the requirements of the stunts and numerous takes and would require a great many repairs and emergency patchwork. Haightley was the stunt bike rider and could do almost anything on the bike but keep the pieces attached every time he jumped it. Johnny Moyo was the stunt coordinator and did a good job putting him through hoops. Moyo was actually the second stunt coordinator on Streethawk, the first one called Pretty Crazy by Builder Dexter Ford, was Mike Tillman, who did the pilot and first three episodes. Tillman worked on numerous films throughout the 80s, such as Megaforce, Daryl, Cobra, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Throw Mama from the Train. John Moyo had a 50-year career in stunt work and got his start as a stunt coordinator on the set of Pete's Dragon in 1977 where he was unexpectedly thrown into the position. His supervisor on the film, elder stuntman Al Wyatt, ostensibly brought him onto the set to be his assistant and promptly left the production the following day, leaving Moyo in charge. Moyo, of course, had his share of injuries over the years in the business, such as on the set of Streets of San Francisco, where he badly sprained his leg. Still, he showed up for work the next day, with a limp that was actually written into the episode so he could continue working. John Moyo accumulated some 200 film and TV credits during his career. John Haightley was one of the motorcycle stunt riders used on the show. A professional motocross racer since age 9, he got his break in stunt work at age 20 on a commercial for Boone's Farm and has since performed motorcycle stunts for films like 1981's Night Riders, 1982's Megaforce. He has a lot of crazy stories from that three-month shoot. Time Rider, The Adventures of Lyle Swan, Harley Davidson in The Marlboro Man, Raw Deal, Inner Space, Bubble Boy, and 2009's Fast and Furious, among some 70 film and TV credits. While there certainly was an element of danger to the stunt work on Streethawk, I found no report of anyone being seriously injured or killed during production, as happened during stunts for shows of the era like Chips, Charlie's Angels, The Dukes of Hazard, Magnum P.I., and Airwolf. But there were a couple of incidents that did happen. During production of the pilot movie, one young stuntman broke his wrist during the scene where dirt bikes dropped out of the rear of a truck in the very first scene, if I'm not mistaken. 
While injuries can happen even on the most well-planned stunts, one documented incident that took place even got the showrunners in hot water with Universal. In mid-July, during the production of Episode 3, The Adjuster, Paul Bellis was on location at night at a construction site on Wilshire Boulevard and Warner Avenue. According to Bert Armas, the site was rigged for an explosion, but due to production delays, it was decided the scene would be cut. However, instead of disarming and removing the explosive charges, Bellis decided it would be faster to simply detonate the charges, which was done, according to Armas's account, without the usual safety measures. The resulting explosion blew out windows at the newly constructed Jewish temple on that same corner, patio windows in an adjoining high-rise, and spewed shrapnel around the area. Area residents that weren't affected by the damage complained about the loud explosion. To hear Walterstorff tell it, an effects technician simply used too much explosive for the stunt, and they stopped using said effects technician following the incident. Jeannie Wilson related one stunt sequence she was involved in, which frightened her. During production of Episode 6, Fire on the Wing, the set was lit on fire and a small explosion was set off as part of a stunt sequence, and Wilson and guest actor Teague Andrews had fire-retardant gel slathered on them. Instead of stunt performers being used, Wilson and Andrews actually performed the stunt. I had a scene where I think I was supposed to be getting some information from one of the guest stars, and the set caught on fire on purpose. It was a stunt. Well, they had put gel all over us so we wouldn't also catch on fire, but they didn't tell us that you do feel like you're on fire. You really are that hot. (laughs) Are you all right? feel like you're on fire and as you run through the fire and you know you won't catch on fire because you have the gel all over you but you're actually running through the fire and you come out and you're totally covered in soot and they're ready with the little you know the fire extinguishers and the ambulances which is a little disconcerting that was a little frightening while star rex smith was not permitted to perform stunts with the second stunt unit he says he would take a bike and tool around la during downtime and in this quote gives us a glimpse of what life was like on set. I used to leave the film studios on the Streethawk bike and go for a ride around town. I'd tell the boys to give me one of those bikes at lunch, and I'd shoot off for a bit around downtown L.A., just take it out for a ride, tell the guys I needed to get into character or some other bull****. We had a lot of fun on the Streethawk set. It was a great team, and we were pretty raucous. Our parties were infamous. The first week I wondered why my trailer was stacked with every imaginable bottle of spirit. I said, I can't drink all of this. And the guy said, you don't have to. We just need to get Universal to pay for it. Friday nights we would work late, but it would be Saturday very, very early before the last person left the lot. Universal must have wondered how I even managed to walk the amount we went through. Rex also may have let the role of Jesse Mock go to his head a bit as he relates in this experience. Believe it or not, I have actually made an arrest on a motorbike. A citizen's arrest, but that still counts. I saw a lady being robbed and I took after the thief, chased him on my bike into a building that was under construction, blocked the entrance on my bike, and waited for the cops to arrive. Go Rex! 
The biggest trouble facing the show, however, may have been that Friday night time slot, in addition to what was brewing behind the scenes at ABC. First, I'd say that Streethawk was tonally an odd entry for ABC's Friday night lineup, following Benson and Webster and before Matt Houston, which attracted a much more mature audience. But beyond that, Friday night was long a problematic night for TV scheduling for the two major networks that weren't CBS, due to their Friday night ratings powerhouse, Dallas, that typically owned the evening. Nighttime serials such as Dallas, Falcon Crest, as well as police, detective, and crime shows such as Matt Houston and Miami Vice that appealed to a mature audience tended to perform well on Fridays. The same could be said for easily digested fare like the Dukes of Hazard and the A-Team and other programs presented early in the evening appealing to those too young to be going out on Friday night. ABC over the years tried scheduling a variety of programming against Dallas, including the ABC Friday Night Movie, Ten Speed and Brown Shoes, Strike Force, The Renegades, Lottery, Blue Thunder, Masquerade, and Hawaiian Heat, among others. Now, add to this fact that ABC had been roundly criticized for their 1984 programming strategies, getting away from the comedy-heavy schedule that appealed to young viewers that helped rocket them to number one by 1977. Now, emphasizing a primetime selection of dramas and adventures in an attempt to chase upscale adult audiences, on some nights, even in the early evening hours. Case in point, Call to Glory, the very series that bopped Streethawk to mid-season. It was slotted at 8 p.m. 7 Central on Monday nights, before Monday Night Football, a critically acclaimed period drama starring Craig T. Nelson, well-received by critics, but hardly something to attract younger viewers, as opposed to the hilarity offered by TV's bloopers and practical jokes on NBC and CBS's hit Scarecrow and Mrs. King that held strong appeal to adult female audiences. Other shows on their schedule included primetime soap Paper Dolls at 9 p.m. 8 Central, Glitter, a drama set behind the scenes at an entertainment magazine, Jesse, a Lindsay Wagner vehicle about a female psychiatrist, Finder of Lost Loves with Anthony Franciosa, Eye to Eye, an American detective drama with Charles Durning, Magruder and Loud, a crime drama, and add to these an already adult-heavy schedule full with Dynasty, Hotel, Matt Houston, T.J. Hooker, and even The Love Boat and Fantasy Island that largely skewed in favor of older viewers' home on Saturday night. In fact, part of the criticism was that ABC was becoming far too dependent on producer Aaron Spelling that churned out over 40% of their primetime schedule, leading industry insiders to call ABC Aaron's broadcasting company. But there was something else brewing behind the scenes that very few knew at the time. A merger was in the works between Capital Cities and ABC, an agreement that was reached on March 16th, but proposed back in December 1984. This news rocked the entertainment world on March 18th, as ABC was acquired by the smaller Capital Cities in a $3.5 billion deal. To finance this, Capital Cities borrowed $2.1 billion from a consortium of banks, partially funded by Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. In the wake of this merger, 
as well as the fact that ABC had been the subject of criticism as we've just seen, a major shift in programming strategy took place. Following NBC's lead in creating a highly successful programming block of comedies on Thursdays, a decision was made for ABC to refocus on family-oriented comedies and create a similar programming block in the first two hours of prime time on Friday nights, where Street Hawk had been airing. The first version of this lineup that debuted March 15th was Webster, Mr. Belvedere, Benson, and Off the Rack, a short-lived Ed Asner vehicle. Soon, ABC had a schedule full of family-friendly comedy, and the tradition of scheduling a comedy block on Fridays was codified in 1989 as TGIF. It's Friday night. Some of the most memorable sitcoms of the 90s were brought to us as part of the TGIF lineup, including Who's the Boss, Growing Pains, Full House, Perfect Strangers, Just the Ten of Us, Family Matters, Dinosaurs, Step by Step, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Boy Meets World, and so on. The tradition of a two-hour family-friendly sitcom block on ABC Friday nights continued until the start of the new millennium. So if you ask me what really killed Street Hawk, it was the one-two punch of ABC's misplacement of the show on Fridays instead of the original Monday night lead-in, followed by Webster and Mr. Belvedere, or rather ABC's strategic shift to a Friday night comedy programming block that evolved into the TGIF lineup. Like several other TV shows of this era featuring fantastic vehicles such as Airwolf, Automan, and of course, Knight Rider, Street Hawk featured a memorable, highly recognizable theme. During production of Street Hawk, there was upheaval in the world of film and TV music composition in the US. The Society of Composers and Lyricists, a union that had just formed the prior summer, was organizing that year in an effort to be recognized as employees rather than independent contractors. As a result, Bellis and Walterstorff considered the option of simply licensing existing hit music for the show, but dropped the idea once they discovered the rights of a single recording could cost as much as $20,000. So the producers began to explore other options. Paul Bellis reportedly went to Germany to secure electronica band Tangerine Dream for the show's theme and to oversee the recording of background music for the pilot and some series episodes. Although they had done music for film, this would be the first U.S. television exposure for the band. Throughout the 80s, the band composed music for over 20 films, including Michael Mann's Thief, the underrated score to Risky Business, and Firestarter. Universal agreed to pay for Tangerine Dream to provide music scoring for five of the episodes following the pilot movie, and Bellis made multiple trips to Germany to oversee the recordings. The main theme selected for Street Hawk used an arrangement of a track off the band's 14th album, still in production to be released in October 1985, called La Park. This album featured nine tracks, a musical travelogue of sorts, 
each inspired by parks around the world, located in Paris, New York, Barcelona, Berlin, Kyoto, London, Sydney, the Rocky Mountains, as well as Los Angeles, represented by the song used for Street Hawk. At the time of Street Hawk, Tangerine Dream consisted of founder Edgar Froza on keyboards and guitars, composer and drummist Christopher Franca, and classically trained keyboardist Johannes Schmuling. The choice of Le Parc accompanied Street Hawk perfectly, and for a time, Street Hawk producers considered a music video of Le Parc, integrating scenes from the show, an idea Rex Smith wasn't crazy about at the time. Videos are as mindless as you can get. I could watch 10 hours of MTV and then watch a Fellini movie and explain every frame. How can you make something that has nothing to do with anything? Of course, the series going on hiatus after only seven episodes nixed any hope of producing a music video based on the show. Around this same time, another series was going into production, executive produced by Michael Mann, who had directed 1981's Thief. Mann was interested in again working with Tangerine Dream and having them provide the theme for this new series, but the band missed out on this opportunity, with that privilege going to Czech-American composer Jan Hammer. I'll let Edgar Frasa explain in this 1986 interview. It's a funny thing about that. The truth is that we were supposed to do Miami Vice. But Michael Mann was starting the pilot for that show at the same time we had signed up to do the music for another television series called Street Hawk. The producer of that show told Michael that we couldn't do Vice because we were doing Street Hawk. As it turned out, that wasn't true at all. We could have done both shows. But we didn't hear about all of this until some time later. And when we found out, we were not very happy. Because, of course, Street Hawk turned out to be a flop, and Miami Vice took off. But Jan did a fairly good job, and the series got what it needed. So, it's okay. The 1985 La Parc album was the last official studio release with Johannes Schmuling, who left Tangerine Dream in October 1985. La Parc has been re-released on CD several times over the years since. Tangerine Dream continued to make music for both German and U.S. film and TV, and their music has been featured on 1987's Near Dark and Three O'Clock High and the Grand Theft Auto V video game. Members of the group Survive have cited Tangerine Dream as a key influencer on their composition of music for Netflix's Stranger Things. In 2016, the band returned the favor and released their own version of the popular series theme. I should note that band member Christopher Franca, after leaving Tangerine Dream, composed music scores to some very familiar movie and TV titles. Babylon 5, Mantis, Universal Soldier, and CBS's The Amazing Race. Band founder Edgar Fressa died in early 2015 but current members keep the now 54-year-old band alive and pledge to continue working together to fulfill his vision for the group. Tangerine Dream is currently working on a new album to be released in 2021 on record label K-Scope. 
Street Hawk had quite a bit of spin-off merchandise in the works, including toys, as you might expect for an action series aimed at young males featuring a fantastic vehicle. In fact, Kenner, licensee of other popular toy lines such as Star Wars, DC Comics, The Six Million Dollar Man, and yes, Knight Rider, had a toy line in the works for Street Hawk, which, as we've covered, was originally intended for a Fall 84 premiere. However, toy lines normally debut at an industry convention in February. At the New York Toy Fair, held February 11th through 20th that year, next to its Whip Shifters display, Kenner had a Street Hawk booth, featuring a line of proposed toys including an assortment of small motorcycles with riders attached, a generic motocross bike with villain rider, a police cycle with officer, and a Street Hawk with Jesse Mock rider. The toys would have a friction motor pullback action to propel them without batteries. To top off this set, they could fit inside the Street Hawk Command Center playset. Kids can launch the Street Hawk cycle into action from the Command Center controls. The set is just like the Command Center on the TV show, complete with simulated computer control panel, ejection tunnel, hidden exit in one wall, and Street Hawk motorcycle. Set also includes Jesse Mock and Norman Tuttle action figures. For the speed and excitement of the TV series, there's nothing like the Street Hawk Command Center playset. Ages four and up, assembly required. A larger Street Hawk toy with Jesse Mock Rider was to be sold separately in a box with a clear window, as opposed to the smaller versions sold on blister cards. It also had a friction motor so you could rev it up to hyperthrust speed. You could also balance it on its back wheel to do a super wheelie. Fun stuff. Rex Smith also appeared in person with an actual Street Hawk motorcycle from the show. Incredibly, ABC's announcement of Street Hawk going on hiatus and being removed from the Friday night schedule, came on the heels of the airing of Episode 7 on February 15th, five days into the Toy Fair. Word spread quickly, and the mannequin that was used as a prop for the Street Hawk motorcycle was laid on its back, arms folded, and lilies placed on its chest in memoriam. With the show on the dreaded hiatus and only a hair away from outright cancellation, the toy line was doomed. And the only toy actually released by Kenner and that actually appeared in their 1985 pre-Toy Fair catalog was the larger size boxed friction motorcycle with Jesse Mock Rider, Kenner catalog number 92720. The piece is somewhat rare and only occasionally shows up on auction sites. However, overseas, there were a slew of Street Hawk toys and tie-in merchandise released, including an Aladdin lunchbox and thermos set, Street Hawk wallpaper rolls by UK Crown wall coverings, Moto Laser toys in Brazil featuring a slot car racetrack and boxed motorcycle toy similar to the Kenner model, and Tony Corrito's pickup truck in case you want to reenact Jesse's injury an MPC model kit of Jesse's 1969 Mustang, Street Hawk color forms, Street Hawk kites by kite brand Spectra, a Street Hawk video game by Ocean Software for the ZX Spectrum home computer, a version of which was released in the U.S. as the infamous Timex Sinclair 1000, the Fun School G.I. Joe Street Hawk crossover, that's right, it seems Fun School, an Indian toy manufacturing company founded in 1987, 
decided to use Street Hawk, which was airing in reruns there at the time in the 90s, to introduce toy consumers to the G.I. Joe line of toys. The blister card had the brand G.I. Joe Hawk and prominently featured the MRF tire brand and a rider that resembled G.I. Joe character Snake Eyes more than Jesse Mock because it was a repainted G.I. Joe Snake Eyes figure. However, it did prominently feature the famous tagline, The Man, The Machine, Street Hawk, so that there would be no confusion as to what the toy was intended to depict. On the back of the card, a list of 19 G.I. Joe characters, as well as three paragraphs explaining the entire G.I. Joe concept, appeared. Street Hawk read-along books with cassette, jigsaw puzzles, Various rack toys, those terrible cheap plastic toys sold on blister cards at the convenience store, where the licensed brand is printed on it for no reason, such as toy walkie-talkies, binoculars, flashlights, and so on. An Ertl voice-activated helmet set, complete with gloves and pretend radio. Now, it's the Streethawk voice-activated helmet from Ertl, with Streethawk logos on the sides. Flip-up visor, working voice changer with microphone, breakaway chin guard, and flashing red light. When you talk, the light flashes. Get the new Streethawk voice-activated helmet today. And in the UK, four novels based on the series were published by Target Books. Streethawk by Jack Roberts, adapted from the pilot. Cons at Large by Jack Roberts, adapted from the episodes The Adjuster and The Unsinkable 453. Golden Eyes by Charles Gale, adapted from the episodes Follow the Yellow Gold Road and Dog Eat Dog, and Danger on Target by David Deutsch, adapted from the episodes Murder is a Novel Idea and Hot Target. After Street Hawk Street Hawk creator Bruce Lansbury went on to produce TV movies such as 1987's The Return of the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. In 1992, he joined sister Angela Lansbury on the ninth season of her successful series, Murder, She Wrote, as supervising producer and stayed with the show through the end of its incredible 12-season run. In his later years, he developed Alzheimer's disease and died in 2017 at age 87. Despite Bert Armis' claim that Paul M. Bellis and Robert Waltersdorf were never heard from again, that's not quite true. The pair were brought on by Don Belisario to be supervising producers on the second season of Quantum Leap in 1989. But after 11 episodes together, the team evidently had some kind of falling out, and Paul Bellis left the production while Bob Waltersdorf stayed on for another seven episodes before leaving in 1990. The creative team that had worked together since 1977 writing for Good Times was no more. Bellis worked on a few more things throughout the 90s, the syndicated series Street Justice, an episode of Silk Stalkings, and creating the teen drama Caitlin's Way, which aired in the U.S. on Nickelodeon. Now 74, the producer has evidently retired to a private life in California's Bay Area. Outside of very few quotes I found in period newspaper articles published during the production of Street Hawk, as far as I can tell, Paul Bellis has never been interviewed or spoken publicly about any of his shows and did not respond to my invitation to participate in this podcast.
Robert Walterstorff stayed on at Universal for another five years, creating the short-lived parody series Danger Theater for the Fox Network in 1993 and the drama Extreme for ABC in 1995. He wrote for the children's movies The Little Rascals and Slappy and the Stinkers, as well as for Fox's Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction, up to 2002. Following that, he worked on writing and producing virtual and practical training exercises for DHS and the military. And last anyone heard was working on Stinger, a comedy about a superhero who has trouble balancing his cover job his private life, and his superhero duties. No such project is currently listed on IMDb, and Walterstorff is not listed on any current productions. The now 72-year-old writer-producer is currently quietly living in the L.A. area. Just a few years following Street Hawk, Rex Smith was up against Michael Keaton for the lead role in the 1989 mega-blockbuster Batman. Instead, he ended up appearing in the 1989 TV movie, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, playing the blind Matt Murdock, otherwise known as Daredevil, alongside Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno, reprising their TV series roles. In the early 90s, he had a 15-episode run on As the World Turns. Since then, he has been able to reprise his stage roles on Grease as well as Pirates of Penzance, and has appeared as part of several other stage productions. In 1997, meeting fans following a matinee performance of Sunset Boulevard, a young man came up to him for his autograph. When Rex looked up at the young man who bore more than a passing resemblance to himself, he quickly realized he was looking into the eyes of his son, Brandon, whom he had never met before that moment. It turned out Rex had fathered Brandon during the height of his rock and roll fame in 1979 on a carefree weekend fling. Brandon's mother kept this knowledge from him until he was 17 and she was lying in the hospital near death from osteomyelitis, a rare bone infection and complication of cancer. Brandon recalled the interaction. She was on morphine and she said, Remember that TV show Street Hawk? That's your dad. Indeed, Brandon was a Street Hawk fan at age five and never missed an episode. Brandon was welcomed into Rex's life, has taken his father's last name, and has given Rex his first grandchild, Buchanan. Today, Rex Smith engages with fans at Street Hawk-related public appearances, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, where he regularly shares his Rexapes. He will also make you a personalized video on Cameo, which he puts an amazing amount of work into. And I'll say he sings just as well as he ever did. Almost immediately following Street Hawk, Jeannie Wilson landed the role of corrections officer Captain Betty Phillips on the CBS comedy Stir Crazy that went to air in the fall of 1985. If you don't remember this series, no one can blame you. A series based on the well-known 1980 Gene Wilder Richard Pryor film, Wilson took over the role from Polly Holiday, who had appeared in the series pilot. 
poor test audience reactions to the pilot caused CBS to recast the role. But audiences and critics alike didn't know what to think about the bizarre one-hour comedy scheduled opposite NBC's hit Highway to Heaven. It was a critical and ratings disaster. By its fourth airing, CBS announced it would go on hiatus due to dismal Nielsen ratings, a prelude to its certain cancellation made official in early January. Following Star Crazy, Jeannie Wilson entered negotiations with CBS to return to her role as D.A. Janet Fowler on Simon & Simon. Although she did reprise her role on a 1987 sixth-season episode, this did not materialize into a return as a series regular. Wilson had a short-lived recurring role on Santa Barbara and guest spots on Hooperman, The New Leave It to Beaver, and Full House. In 1995, it was one more round with the Simon Brothers on the TV reunion movie Simon and Simon in Trouble Again. After that, she seemed to largely have retired from acting, appearing once on an episode of JAG in 2001 and in the 2010 film Cartel War, a film written, directed, and starring husband Jack Lucarelli. Now 74, Jeannie is still married to Jack, they are still friends with Jameson Parker and Gerald McCraney, and the pair appear to be enjoying a quiet life in the LA area with their calico cat, Gypsy. Joe Rigalbuto, immediately following Streethawk, had a recurring role on Knott's Landing and made the guest star rounds on various shows of the era. But in 1988, he finally got a series that ran more than 13 episodes. When he was cast in the role he's best remembered for, investigative reporter Frank Fontana on 10 seasons of the Diane English sitcom Murphy Brown. 11 when you count the 2018 revival. During his time on that modern classic show, he was able to expand his talents into directing and has now helmed some 150 episodes of television over the last three decades. His success of being on one of the top sitcoms of the 90s for a decade has given him the ability to work when he wants and pursue his hobbies of working on his amazing backyard model train set which appeared in Model Railroader magazine, as well as playing the saxophone. Journeyman actor Richard Venture continued working on television with recurring roles on The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, the short-lived sitcom The Boys, and a defense attorney on Law & Order. The actor accumulated over 100 film and TV credits over his career and died in 2017 at age 94. Despite its short 13-episode run, Street Hawk was rerun in syndication in the U.S. on cable stations WOR and USA Network, as well as local stations into the early 90s. It was immediately broadcast in the U.K. and internationally distributed to Argentina as El Condor, Brazil as Motolaser, Finland as Catuhauca, France as Tonnerre Mécanique, Italy as Il Falto della Strada, Japan as Kyoi no Supa Baiku Sutorito Hoku, or literally 
Amazing Superbike Streethawk, the Soviet Union as Ulichny Yastreb, Spain as El Halcón Callejero, also making it to Canada, Germany, and India, among other countries. The Streethawk pilot movie had VHS and Laserdisc releases in multiple countries with running times varying from 60 to 90 minutes in length. In 2010, Shout Factory released the series to DVD and included a 40-minute documentary interview with Rex Smith, Joe Rigalbuto, and Jeannie Wilson. The DVD set runs about $30 and is currently in print. Streethawk is also available on Amazon Prime Video for 99 cents an episode, making the series an affordable $13 for those who wish to eschew a DVD purchase. Beyond DVD and streaming, Streethawk continues to pop up in popular culture here and there. In 2011, Streethawk fans got a treat on a Season 4 episode of NBC's Chuck, where Chuck rides the Nighthawk, a special weaponized government motorcycle prototype capable of speeds up to 250 miles per hour and immense firepower, featuring dual machine guns and a rocket launcher. The name and features of this cycle being obvious references to Streethawk for observant fans. Let's not forget the amazing Tangerine Dream theme, which has been covered by various artists on YouTube, and musician Giuliano Pilati, who creates and performs Streethawk-style music, some of which you heard in this podcast. There's also the Streethawk food truck, often found on the University of Iowa campus, that will serve you up Jesse Mock-approved cheeseburgers and pulled pork sandwiches. For those whose tastes run more like Norman's, Kimchi slaw and vegetarian falafel sandwiches are offered. Star Rex Smith has made attempts to resurrect the 80s series. Since at least 2010, Rex has made fan appeals to reboot Streethawk in one form or another, one which could star son Brandon in the lead role, and another in a combined live-action video game concept. And fans continue to build Streethawk replica motorcycles. It's unfortunate that during its original run, Streethawk was written off as a Knight Rider clone, even though Bruce Lansbury had the concept before there was a Knight Rider, and that this perception has endured to this day. Both shows can trace their lineage to that first super vehicle presented by Universal in 1940, the Black Beauty. And both were updated 80s takes on the classic heroes of yesteryear, like the Lone Ranger and Green Hornet. In another reality, we could have seen Streethawk developed earlier, perhaps with its original intended title, Falconer, screaming down the streets at the beginning of the 80s and have Knight Rider be called the Imitator. At the time it aired, critics loved to call out the ridiculous elements of Streethawk, but was it really any more ridiculous than a pair of cousins that would jump their car over literally anything in Hazard County, with each jump in reality ripping the engine mounts, bending the chassis, and ruining the suspension? Or a crack commando unit that would discharge hundreds of rounds of ammunition per episode, with no one ever getting killed, and occupants always emerging unscathed from vehicle rollovers? or an ex-con pursuing felons down L.A. streets in a Formula race car, completely impractical for urban pursuit. Compared with these TV contemporaries, a 300-mile-per-hour motorcycle with laser and machine gun doesn't seem as much of a stretch. 
it would be great to see Universal resurrect Streethawk in some form. Because even after 36 years, fans continue to be obsessed with the man, the machine, Streethawk. Next time on Forgotten TV. He was one of the most prolific TV writer-producers of the 60s and 70s, bringing us some of the most iconic TV series of those decades. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling the So why don't more people remember his name? On the next Forgotten TV, we'll take a look at the life of TV creator Leslie Stevens and his ahead-of-its-time 1972 NBC series, Search, which completely dropped off the U.S. TV airwaves after a single season. Leslie Stevens and Search, next time on Forgotten TV. As you might imagine, a lot of research goes into Forgotten TV. IMDb and newspaper subscriptions, book purchases, and so on. And this podcast is still advertising-free and listener-supported. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, as did new producer Ralph Caracillo who will get an envelope full of forgotten TV goodies, as well as gaining access to about 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, including documentaries on ABC and the Still the One Era, and the untold real history of the video rental industry. Something also tells me this isn't the final word on Streethawk, and even more info will come in due time, necessitating a supplementary podcast. This episode was executive produced by Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. Thanks to Kenneth Taylor for the DVD used. With producers Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Ralph Caracillo, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by ABC. Universal Television, Lime Kiln and Templar Productions, NBC Universal, Shout Factory, Fabulous Films, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. Streethawk and all mentioned series and associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2021 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own, and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and website articles. 
All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. Superhero Story 2 by Frederick Ekstrom is used under license by Epidemic Sound. You also heard Synthoid's cover of The Safety Dance. Follow Synthoid on SoundCloud, link in the show notes. Music from Streethawk Begins, Streethawk Adventures, and Streethawk Returns by Giuliano Pilati is used under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Links to these fine albums are in the show notes. Please support Giuliano Pilati by making a donation. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of the audio clips possible. Old Wild West, Kent Allard, Old Time Radio Researchers, Radio Shows Old Time, The Federal File, David Gideon, Memory Museum, 80s TV Fan, Retropolis Channel, Knight Rider Show, Live Place GR, Mr. T, Chicken Lickin' SA, Beta Max, Old Time Sports Fan, TV's Greatest, Al Stewart and Other Icons, Forever for Rex, Squares Your True, NBC Classics, Ran 5900, Tangerine Dream, Soundtrack Series, Fans of Jingles, David Gideon, Super Bike Planet, Hello from TV Land, Consumer Time Capsule, and Robert C. 2009. Special thanks to Deborah Dean Davis, Tom Green, and the real experts and keepers of the Streethawk Flame, John Rollins, Timothy Canterbury, Chris Granger, Paul Scher, Mark J. Carnes, and Webmaster Josh from Streethawk Online. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following websites and magazines. Streethawk Online, Cycle World Magazine, Two Wheels Only Magazine, Motorcyclist Magazine, The Comic Book Central Podcast, IBDB, the Broadway Online Database, Theater Mania, New York Magazine, IMCDB, the Internet Movie Cars Database, Stars and Cars Events, Retro Junk, Variety, Figure Realm, The Forgotten Figures Blog, Clifton Merchant Magazine, The Historian's Hut, The Rake, The Hollywood Reporter, Road and Track, The Super Saturday Short-Lived Showcase, Behind the Voice Actors, and numerous period newspaper articles from newspapers.com. And the books, The Green Hornet, A History of Radio, Motion Pictures, Comics, and Television by Martin Grahams Jr., Knight Rider Legacy by Joe Huth IV and Richie F. Levine. Thank you for listening. Be sure to bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links. I am your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. This is Jesse Mock, an ex-motorcycle cop injured in the line of duty. How do I sound like this all the time? I can only sound like this in the morning.